Welcome, disturbed minds, to a holiday experience like no other. This is the Disturbed Mind Podcast, and we're here to unwrap the gift of fear in our special Christmas episode. Brace yourselves for a chilling journey through the festive season, where the joy of the holidays meets the darkness that lies beneath. In this episode, we bring you over three hours of bone-chilling tales, each more haunting than the last. From the shadows of Christmas trees to the icy depths of winter, these stories will send shivers down your spine as you await the arrival of Santa Claus. So, grab a cup of hot cocoa, snuggle up by the fireplace, and prepare for a Yuletide experience you won't forget. Without further ado, let the Disturbed Mind Christmas special begin. Shadows on the Ice by Dagan Billups. I think it's been 16 days since we first arrived, eager to spend two weeks away from civilization to get back to our roots. We'd come, Earl, Mason, Ricky, and I, from the town of Andery, Manitoba, where the four of us attended university, myself passionately studying English, though for what ends I never knew. Earl I had known since we were young, both of us hailing from Maysburg, Tennessee, and riding on full scholarships, such a close companion helping to abate the loneliness that comes with traversing to a faraway place. We did not befriend Ricky and Mason, however, until our sophomore year, both of whom were from the local area. It became soon apparent afterwards that we all shared a passion for the hunt. It was for this reason that we decided to take up on an advertisement Earl had found online to rent out this cabin in the remotes of Saskatchewan for two weeks before heading back home for Christmas. It seemed like the perfect getaway we'd all been looking for, the chance to feel alive and masculine. The advertisement explicitly stated that the cabin had absolutely none of the modern luxuries the modern world provides for us. Electricity, central heating, internet, or even any kind of reception due to its isolation. The perfect vacation. We reached out to the one who posted this opportunity, an old woman who summered here with her husband for a few weeks in June. The price was fair, and we all chipped in to cover the costs. When winter break finally came, we gathered our food, guns, and beer to make the long excursion into the prospecting wilderness. That first night, we unpacked and relaxed around the fireplace with our ample supply of Labatt Blue, planning out the activities of the next two weeks. We planned on hunting, of course, though Mason was a little worried about us being discovered by authorities, as we had not been able to purchase hunting licenses due to not being official residents of Saskatchewan. However, we all assured him that there was nobody for miles and that there was absolutely nothing to be worried about. The next day did not go according to plan, though not to our displeasure. Instead of searching for small game, we decided to instead drink a copious amount of the Labatt Blue and Eggnog, not the kind you give to small children, with not-so-legal herbal substances for dessert. We made a point to ourselves to make as much noise as humanly possible, celebrating the end of the grueling semester. Needless to say, we passed out in a drunken stupor, our positions more embarrassing than I would like to admit. We awoke the next morning to find ourselves shivering and having eaten more than two days' worth of food. Ricky, who was comparable in size to an elephant, was the main culprit for this, as he had dressed up as Santa Claus and decided to be the food Santa, which in his intoxicated mind meant to eat everything he could get his hands on. At some point, 
we managed to shake our hangovers enough to put on our boots and coats and set out in the early afternoon to try and shoot some rabbit or squirrel. We worked superbly as a team and bagged about four rabbits, three squirrels, and five birds before nightfall. We all figured that if we were breaking the law to begin with, that we might as well go all the way. And it felt good, too. We felt primal in those frigid woods. We set out earlier the next day, though we had a little less luck than the previous night, as we killed about the same amount as the previous afternoon, though over the entire day instead of a few hours. However, it was not until the following day that we became really excited about our excursions, for after bagging more small game, we came across elk tracks at the northern border of the woods, about three miles away from the cabin. We followed them into spacious snow-blanketed plains and found a lone calf crying by itself. Shh, I hissed as I crouched down and steadied my rifle. Hell, you ain't gonna kill that cute little baby, are you? Mason asked. I raised my hand to silence him. Tuck. I fired the gun, the bullet piercing through the calf's hind leg. It shrieked, and I fired thrice more, finally bringing the beast down. You were saying? I teased. Well, hell, I was gonna say we ought to leave him, but I guess it's too late now. We all chuckled and swiftly snuck over to it to make sure it was dead. Sure enough, I'd knocked its lights out. Yet, it was then that Ricky pointed at the sky. Look, he said while scratching his enormous belly. Northern lights. We all looked up, and sure enough, the sky was beginning to glow with a deep green hue, the pattern slowly trawling over the starlit sky, while red flickered sparingly like splashes of blood. Looks like a Christmas tree, eh? Mason admired. Been a while since I've seen any of those. Yeah, yeah, beautiful, Earl grumbled. Now let's get this bad boy back to the cabin. We tied up the calf and carried it back, though we said little. I'm not sure if the others could sense it, but I had the feeling we were being watched by something lurking in the shadows. Despite this, we made the trip back without incident, while the red and green sky lit the snow beneath our boots. We were correct, as about a mile and a half away from where I'd shot the calf, we found a handful of very large elk shambling along the next day, occasionally nibbling at the frozen ground. All of us save Mason killed one, though we brought only one back. We partied again the day following that to celebrate our victory, and also to take a break from the hunt with Ricky, much to my horror, pretending again to be the food Santa and demolishing any food in sight. At some point, Ricky disappeared only to come back with a pine tree that surprisingly fit well within the living room, for which we fashioned a star out of cut-up eggnog containers and hung bottle caps and miscellaneous objects from it using fishing line we'd found in the closet. Besides that, though, there was little incident, and we once again passed out unevenly across the cabin. Yet that night, I could not seem to keep my eyes away from the windows, as though something was subconsciously calling upon my attention. Earl, I also noticed, seemed to be eyeing the windows too, though we never mentioned this phenomenon to one another. We ignored our hangovers when we awoke, our primal enthusiasm having been renewed by our day's break, and we set out to the northern plains again, eager to find the elk. 
We found them about two miles away from where they had been before, now northeast of the cabin. All right, I murmured to Mason. Since you haven't gotten one yet, you get to go first. Careful, though. Ain't that many left. Be easy for him to slip off. Mason nodded and slid to his belly, peering down the scope through the bushes we hid behind. The shot missed, and they all scattered to the trees before Mason had a chance to fire again. Damn! He cried. You fuckhead! Now we gotta track him down all over again! I yelled with a kick of snow onto his back. He brushed it off and stood. We already killed three of them, Tuck. Earl threw his hands up. Well, shit, I want to kill some more. Hey, Ricky bellowed. Calm it down, eh? We've still got plenty of light. We'll just go give her. I said nothing, but instead began to stomp over to the trees, the vein in my temple pumping. The others followed, and we found that the elk had gone south. It was about a mile away when Earl piped up from behind us. Hey, there are wolves in these parts? Yeah, I know there's some timber wolves, Ricky affirmed. Why do you ask? Well, Earl said while closely inspecting the ground. Seemed to be what looked like wolf tracks over here, and a big old pile of wolf shit too. I straightened my back and traipsed over to where he stood and inspected it myself. Having hunted them before, I knew immediately that he was correct. You guys want to hunt some wolves? I asked with a sly grin on my face. Aren't they protected or something? Mason quizzed doubtfully. We glared at him and he cast his eyes down in embarrassment. We followed the tracks further south and around the cabin headed east, though night fell on us before we could find the wolves, and we decided to head back to the cabin, keeping in mind the location, which was a little less than a mile east of the cabin. The next day proved to be colder than usual, bitingly frozen, but we persisted nonetheless and after just an hour and a half came across the remains of small animals, and soon after that, we came across a frozen pond with a large pack fighting over the corpse of a calf. Hey, Earl whispered as we settled behind some brush. I just noticed something. What's that? I asked. Earl lowered his voice and cast a wary eye to the predators beyond the trees. I ain't heard any howling these past few days and they're fighting with each other right now, but they aren't making any noise. I brushed this off, though I could see that Mason scratched at his red ears. So, I demanded, all I care about is bagging me a couple of wolves. I could care less if they're quiet. One of the wolves, a small gray runt who'd been nipping at heels to get a chance to eat, suddenly perked his ears and began sniffing in our direction. I held my finger up and readied my rifle. The others followed suit. I fired the first round, killing the runt, and the others followed. We each killed one, despite them having scrambled away in the blink of an eye. Ricky had managed to kill what seemed to be the Alpha, a large monstrosity with its muzzle soaked in blood. Holy hot damn, that's a keeper, eh? Ricky guffawed. Sure is, pal, Mason praised. Mine's no pipsqueak either, though. Mason looked over at my kill and scoffed. You were getting your gaunch in a wad over that missed shot, he goaded. Go piss up a rope. Ricky slung his gun over his shoulder and sighed. Shut it, you two. 
Let's just bring them back to the cabin. God, it's fucking freezing. Wish I had my Mickey on me. Mason laughed and said, Yeah, you'd love to get pissed, wouldn't you? Hell, you drank that whole 2-4 by yourself. I'd rather you not, Earl grumbled as he stuck a pinch of dip in his mouth. Ate up half a damn shopping mall doing your whole Santa shtick, you fat piece of shit. Ricky playfully gave Earl the finger and grappled the dead wolf by its neck and began heading back the way we came. We all followed suit, and that night prepared a meal out of the small game we'd collected from the days prior. Hey! Ricky bellowed from the kitchen, candles throwing long shadows across the walls. Where's my 2-4? You fucking drank it, remember? I replied as I whittled away at a piece of wood. Already? Yep. Well, shit. Any of you guys mind if I have a beer? Yeah. Mason said with a glance up from a book on Native American mythology. Go ahead. Thanks. We stared in silence at the dying fire for the next hour, each of us lost in our thoughts, not speaking until the flames finally died. Guess I'll go ahead and get some more firewood, Earl yawned. He stood up with a stretch and headed towards the side door, where he put on his winter layers. Half an hour went by before I noticed that he hadn't returned, the fuck did he go? I slurred with a glass of eggnog in my hand. Dunno, Ricky remarked. Want me to go check on him? I nodded and finished the glass. Ricky had been outside scarcely two minutes before he came panting back to the doorway. Guys, you better come out here. What is it? Mason asked. Ricky, he's... He's not out there. Saw some blood on the snow and trails leading off into the woods. Grab the guns, too. Mason and I leapt to our feet and grabbed our rifles and coats, racing out to the woodshed, where we could see discarded logs and a copious amount of blood, while deep crevices in the snow showed what appeared to have been where he'd been struggling and dragged away, though the cascading flurries were already beginning to cover this. We gave little time to take in the scene before we charged off into the woods, following the bloody path. We followed the trail for half an hour before it suddenly ended, with no trace of Earl in sight. The hell is he? I gasped as the cold chewed at my face. Ricky wiped his brow and replied, I don't know, let's just look around and keep looking. We split up with our guns readied, all dreading what we might find. The snow was deep and the wind yowled and yawped. Vaguely, I was aware that in the sky, blood-red aurora borealis danced, but I paid it no heed for I was focused on finding my friend. Oh shit! Ricky exclaimed. What is it? He didn't give a reply, though immediately afterwards I heard Mason curse and gag. Shaking my head, I trotted over to them, and I froze. Lying in the bushes was the naked body of a man, torn and chewed beyond recognition, with the head ripped carelessly from the body. Can't be, Mason whispered. Fucking can't be, it's not Earl. The hell do you mean it's not Earl? Ricky demanded. It can't be, it's gotta be someone else. I mean, Earl's gotta still be out here. Mason, I said, it's him, man. Who else would it be? Be, but we don't know that. There's no clothes, and no head. 
All right. Well, I'll, uh, I'll look for the other parts, I said with a pat on his shoulder. I didn't know what else to do. It felt like my stomach had dropped. Then I found it. Lying in the bushes was a pile of bloodied rags, torn remnants of Earl's attire. Holding my hand over my mouth, I reached out and picked up the rags, only to find Earl's head underneath, broken and misshapen. I could feel my body trying to empty its bladder, though luckily I held it in. What? Ricky asked, his face paler than the snow. I shook my head and pointed as I stepped away, doubled over in an attempt to keep the rushing nausea at bay. We need to get out of here, Mason whimpered. Man, we need to get back to the cabin right now. I nodded my head and hurried back the way we came without a moment's thought. The trip back felt quick, and I could feel eyes watching us from the shadows, waiting for the next chance to strike again. But I ignored them, trying to keep the hot image of Earl's head out of my eyelids while snow pricked at my face. None of us said a word to each other when we got back. We slept fitfully that night, and Ricky awoke us several times from downstairs, where he slept by the fireside. Neither Mason or I blamed him when we would come racing down, just in case the screams were more than nightmares. In the morning, none of us felt eager for breakfast, though we did so out of concern for our health and warmth, as the temperatures were plummeting faster than ever. We discussed what happened and came to the conclusion that there could but one culprit for the murder of our friend, wolves. In clear hindsight, it was foolish for us to do so, but we became enraged at this attack, blubbering and foaming at the mouth for retribution. And it was for this reason that we set off into the snow-covered woods that day, for we sought vengeance. There was nothing spectacular to say about the excursion, other than that the tracks and blood had been completely covered by the snow, though we could feel a tension in the air, prickling at the backs of our necks. It was not until nightfall that we again found Earl's body, with only a finger peeking out over the snow. We'd gone in circles all day, searching desperately in our memories for clues as to his whereabouts. When we did find him, Ricky took out a bright red rag and hung it from a tree branch. Should we need to return to the spot later and find Earl completely submerged, though we'd cleared the snow around his naked body. We then headed east, as we knew they could not be south, as we had come from that direction nor west, as that was where the cabin was, and to the north were the plains and frozen pond. The snow whipped at our faces as we blundered through the snow, and the deeper into the woods we went, the more skeletal and twisted the trees became, seeming to become frightful figures leering at us, plotting our demise. The terrain grew hilly, but though our feet were worn and sore, we persisted, fueled by a blinding rage. It was late into the night when we found the wolves' den. It was nestled under an overhang in the side of a hill, with roots spreading their fingers over the walls and floor of the enclave, with bones and carcass strewed about. At first, I took them to be shadows in the dark, but Mason was the one to notice their oddity. Are... are they sleeping? He stammered. I squinted my eyes and shook my head. Believe so, whispered Ricky. They should be hunting right now. That's odd. I lowered my gun and tested the branch of a nearby tree. I don't give a flying damn, I growled as I began my ascent up the tree. 
I'm gonna kill every last one of them if it's the last thing I do. They agreed and took positions in opposite trees so that we circled the sleeping wolves. I told them to wait for me to take the first shot and to keep shooting after that cue. I sighed and tried to relax my shoulders, but to no avail. My blood was boiling and my fingers were itching to spill blood. I lined up the scope and looked for the biggest one. There he was, right next to the bones of a rabbit. I fired. The silent air exploded with gunshots and yowls and yelps as we fired at the unsuspecting beasts, their blood staining the crystalline snow. We killed about three of them and wounded two others, though they escaped deeper into the hills along with another one who left uninjured. Easy. When we eased to the den to inspect the damage, Ricky gave a short gasp of surprise and inspected the walls of the inlet, the smell of flesh pungent. You guys see this? There's drawings on the walls. We shined our flashlights to meet his and saw what appeared to be Native American symbols and drawings written upon the walls of the earth, depicting crude interpretations of owls, wolves, and another animal I wasn't quite sure the nature of, though it seemed to be feline in nature. Looking up, I saw there were feathers and other decorated trinkets hanging from the ceiling. Thought nobody lived out here? I breathed. I tore one of the trinkets off and inspected it, talons from what appeared to be an owl. I threw them down and left the den without a word, heading in the direction the wolves had escaped. None of us said anything as we searched for the wolves. We seemed to be perfectly tuned into each other as we traipsed into the night. The sky glowed redder than ever, casting angry hues over the land. I thought it odd that this phenomenon should be occurring so frequently, but my mind was elsewhere. I wanted only to kill these beasts. We eventually, after grueling struggle through the snow, which was picking up despite the skies being clear, found the first of the injured wolves, whimpering and licking its wounds. We killed it and found the next wolf, an older cub, not far ahead. It was as we were searching for the third wolf, the one who'd escaped uninjured that we felt it. It was subtle at first, but soon there was a kind of electric static in the air, making our hair frizz and cling to our faces. The red sky blackened with clouds, and the snowfall grew into a blizzard. We had not been speaking before, but now we didn't dare to. We could all feel it. An owl cried from above, and I saw what looked to be a mangy animal slipping off into the bushes, yellow eyes glaring at us for a few moments before disappearing. Was that a cougar? Ricky hissed under his breath. I nodded and he swallowed. Thought they were supposed to be further east, Mason mumbled. I put my finger to my lips and scanned the trees around us. Though the snow was heavier than ever, I felt as though we were in the eye of a storm. We waited. We waited for an eternity in that windy silence. We knew not what we waited for, but we knew whatever it was, it was something to be feared. Mason had moved to make a run for it, but I grabbed him by the shoulder, not wanting to alert whatever was there with our presence, in the off chance it didn't know exactly where we were. Perhaps ten minutes had gone by, us planted into the cold ground, eyes raw and wet, when we heard the beasts. They howled, no roared from nearby, a deafening bellow that demanded flesh, and it came from all around us. 
Ricky bolted, racing faster than I could ever imagine him running back the way we came. Mason was on his tail, and I knew that I had better follow suit. I could hear them trampling in the snow behind us, monstrous beasts snarling and stampeding after us. Blood pumped and rang in my ears, but my legs were numb, and I was perpetually urging them onwards, praying hard that they not tremble and slip. The snow to the sides of us erupted, and I could see shadowy behemoths racing alongside, though I could not get a good look at them, nor did I try. My eyes were focused ahead, and my mind was fitted with a single purpose, to flee. They bellowed and howled, their noises ungodly and bone-shattering. Ahead, I could see the den with the dead wolves. As though in slow motion, Ricky tripped over one of the carcasses and screamed. But neither I or Mason paused in our tracks. We could not afford a moment's hesitation, lest those shadowy beasts come upon us, and we left Ricky behind. The sounds of his screams and breaking bones followed our ears until they ended with a ghostly suddenness. I don't know how we managed to get back to the cabin. The creatures could have killed us with ease at any point in the race home. But I did not care, for the sight of the cabin felt like a godsend, and Mason and I barreled through the door and locked it tight. The moment we came inside, the air grew silent again, and the static seemed to disappear. Without a word, we went to other doors and locked them, and then closed the shutters on all the windows in the house. Mason threw some of the heavy furniture in front of the doors while I relit the fire, eager to get rid of the cold biting at my flesh. What the fuck just happened? Mason croaked. What were those things? I don't know, but we need to leave as soon as possible, though we should probably wait until morning. I don't want to go out there again while it's still dark out. Mason agreed, and we packed our things, after which we sat by the fire with our rifles in our laps and pistols loaded on the coffee table. We listened intently to the night, not daring to sleep. At one point, Mason began to doze off, but I made him and myself coffee to open our eyes. Around three in the morning, we were jolted by a din of screeching metal from outside. Fearing the worst, we ran upstairs and peered out the window. Mason cleared frost from the window and cursed under his breath. What? What is it? Just... come look. Nervously, I approached the window and peered out towards the truck. Fucking Christ. From what I could tell, the front of it had been ripped up, with shredded metal protruding like gnarled teeth. I scanned the area for the beasts, but could see nothing, not even tracks in the snow. Should we go out now, or wait until morning? He asked, his eyes scanning the other windows rapidly. Definitely morning, I answered. I didn't want either of us to end up like Earl or Ricky. Mason nodded his head, and we went back downstairs and escaped to the warmth of the fire. When morning came, we grabbed our guns and went upstairs to check through the windows whether or not the coast was clear. Fortunately, it appeared as such, though we were still light on our feet as we headed outside to inspect the damage to the truck while the red lights in the sky still flicked under the sun. Hell! Mason cried. They ripped up the whole goddamn engine! It was true. 
The screeching metal we'd heard that night had indeed been the creatures ripping through the hood of the car and mauling the engine beyond any hopes of repair. The metal sliced through as though it was butter. Mason stomped over to the side of the truck and groaned. They took out the fucking tires, too! What? Yeah, come here and look! I walked over to him and screamed, bashing the palm of my hand against the side door. How in the fuck could they know to slash the engine and the tires? I yelled. Mason shook his head and ran his fingers through his hair. Only got one spare in the back. Besides, no way we could fix that English. He turned his head towards the trees. What is it? I asked, my voice hushed. I suddenly became aware of the sensation that we were being watched. He scanned the woods with his eyes. Let's just go back inside. We were quiet for the rest of the day, conversing and whispers and throwing hectic glances to the doors and windows, even though the shutters were closed and bolted tight. It was that night, too, when the howling began, if you could call it that. The moans were deep and hollow, yet full of fury and lament. They were unlike anything we'd ever heard and kept us on edge, as though we might slip out the door by accident and be devoured by those things while the makeshift Christmas tree in the corner mocked us silently with its naive cheerfulness. Not having had a good night's rest two nights in a row, I went upstairs soon after the howling began, hoping that sleep would be my sanctuary. It was as I was about to change out of my clothes when I first noticed the shadows on the ice tucked away behind the trees. They were darker than the night and seemed to weave in and out of existence, merging and dispersing as though to avoid my eyes under the soft red glow of the northern lights. They were monstrous in size too, though I could distinctly tell they were not in the shape of any large creatures local to the area. I snuck back downstairs and whispered for Mason to follow me back up and pointed out the shapes. Don't like the looks of those things, he mumbled. Don't look natural, like they're not made of anything. God, they... They must be as big as a horse, eh? I smiled grimly. We ought to keep watch, I said. Take turns so we can get some rest. Well, I'll take first watch then. Don't think I want to know what my dreams will be like tonight. I checked my watch. It's only six. Want to do three-hour shifts and wake me up at nine? He nodded and went back downstairs. Neither of us heard anything save the howling, though around midnight, Right as I was going back to sleep after my turn to stay up, the air became quiet and stayed that way for the rest of the night. Mason was wrapping his fingers on the kitchen table when I came downstairs around nine, having awoken of my own accord. Anything new? I yawned. He stared at the closed window as though he could see the scenery beyond. You there? They did it again, Tuck. What do you mean? I asked. His face was still pointed at the window. They're playing with us. How so? He looked at me and I could see that his eyes were raw. I went out to the icebox by the woodshed after the sun came up. We're low on food and I needed to see if any of the meat was still fresh. And? It's all gone. The door's ripped off and all of the meat is gone. Every last bit. So we're stuck with a few granola bars and coffee because thanks to our wonderful foresight, we ate more than we planned. 
My throat felt dry. How much do we have left? I asked. Probably enough for two days between the two of us. We were planning on eating the game for dinner, but guess that didn't go so well. All we've got are the snacks we brought. We'll have to ration this. Guess we can get snow from the front porch for water. During the day, that is. I opened the pantry and counted a box of Pop-Tarts, five granola bars, and half a box of Ricky's cookies. Goddamn Ricky and his food Santa bullshit! I hissed under my breath. I mean, we were all supposed to be leaving tomorrow anyways. Well, doesn't look like that'll happen anytime soon. I slammed the pantry shut and pounded my fist against the table. I swear, if Ricky were here right now, I'd wring his fat fucking neck. Mason nodded and pulled out a can of dip, which I recognized to be Earl's. Give me a pinch of that, I demanded. Mason dumped a small lump in my hand and I stuck it in my mouth, a habit I'd quit the year prior. I thought hard. Guess we can still hunt some small game. They don't seem to come out in the daylight. Mason's eyes widened and he jerked his head vigorously. Hell no, I'm not setting foot back out there if I can help it he said. Just going to the woodshed, I could feel that... that feeling from the other night. Like the air sticky. Felt their eyes all over me. Well, we've gotta have food, I returned. Uh-huh. Not taking a step out that door so long as I can help it. Well, I'm not going back out there alone. His eyes grew heavy and he hung his head. Tomorrow, he sighed. We'll go out tomorrow. I just... I need to prepare myself. Let's just eat what we've still got today. I reached for a cup and spat into it, eyeing Mason down heavily. His eyes darted between my own and the floor. All right, fine. We'll hunt tomorrow. Catch some rabbit. Maybe some bird. Cook it up right away. Just keep doing that until somebody comes looking. He nodded his head and hurried past me, going upstairs, where he remained for the rest of the day. Out of both contempt and grief for the loss of Ricky, I grabbed his Santa hat and grabbed a beer from the last case, warm as piss. Food Santa, I grumbled later as I sipped on my eighth beer in a row. Dumb fucking bastard. I'll show that fool what a food Santa really is. Stumbling, I rose from the chair and grabbed the rifle and loaded it. I don't care what the hell Mason says. I want meat, I growled. Might catch a rabbit. Keep him. Keep him as a pet. Name him Earl. Might keep another one. A fat one. Name that one Ricky. I shambled over to the door and pulled on my coat, still drunkenly grumbling nonsense to myself. But the moment I opened the door, I was smacked in the face by a whirlwind of blinding snow and, and that tension in the air the same kind of static tension that we'd felt when they took Ricky. I tried to ignore it and took a step forward. My foot landed on something soft and squishy. It was Ricky's head. I screamed and fell backwards into the house, scrambling to shut the door. For a moment, I thought I saw yellow eyes glaring at me from the trees. Mason, I cried, dragging myself back away from the door. Mason, get down here, it's Ricky. What? Ricky? I heard him fly down the stairs and saw his hand next to me, offering to help me up. Where is he? I blinked and gagged. 
outside the door. Wait, no. Dad, don't open it. It's not him. It's his head. The damn thing's left it for us. Mason ignored my warning. He flung open the door and screamed just as I had. Jesus Christ, you could have told me that instead of saying he was here. My bad, I hiccuped, doubled over. You're pissed, aren't you? I slowly nodded my head. He huffed and said, All right, just come upstairs. Get some sleep. He put his arm around me and dragged me up the stairs, my boots thudding against the panels, softened by snow and blood. When I came to, night had already fallen, and the howling had begun closer this time. Mason sat at the desk next to the window, reading from his book on Native American legends. They're still at it? I croaked. He jumped a little and nodded, putting down the book. They're closer, he whispered. Look. I got up and went over to the window, the cold almost snapping my toes in half. Outside, the snow blew hard against the icy glass, but through it, I could see the dark shapes again, though they were now at the edge of the trees, circling around the house. One of them slipped into the moonlight, and I caught a momentary glimpse of it. It was a wolf. It was the biggest goddamn wolf I'd ever seen, and as Mason had said, it must have been as big as a horse. Its head was flat, and its back was sloped down like a coyote's, yet the fur was a silvery shade of gray that seemed to glow against the snow when under the crimson moonlight. But in the shadows, they grew dark and obscure. Their movements were just as slippery as before, one moment being in eyesight and the next having seemed to merge into the shadows. Between the howling, I would occasionally see one bark and yelp at another of the giant beasts, as though speaking to one another. What the hell do you think that thing is? I asked. I don't know. Trying to look in here for anything. I looked behind me and he raised the book to me. To hell with that nonsense. I say they're a bunch of damn werewolves. His eyebrows flicked, though I could not tell if they did so out of doubt or fear. I know it sounds crazy, I hurried, but what else could they be? They're fucking huge. And they're smart, too. It knew to take out the truck. It knew to take the meat. And look, they're talking to each other. He gulped. Used to have nightmares about werewolves. He chuckled, though his eyes were wide. I mean, I guess it's the only thing that makes sense. You think there's any silver or anything? Any crosses? Maybe Wolfsbane? Might be a cross or two somewhere, but I doubt there's any silver. What we need are silver bullets. But we sure as hell don't have any of those in here. And the only damn things edible we have anymore are some little granola bars and cookies. Definitely no plants. The window rattled with the wind, causing us both to jump. You think we could shoot them from up here? He asked. I looked back to the window. Nah, snow's too thick. Can't see them but for a second or two. He slumped in his chair. Shit. I agree. I spent the next hour scrounging around the house, but all I could find was the silverware and an old Bible, none of which I had any clue as for what to do with besides set them next to the doors. I didn't sleep for the whole night, though once the howling stopped at sunrise, my eyes allowed themselves to rest. It was later in the morning that Mason woke me up, clutching the book in his hands. 
Tuck. I think I know what they are, and I don't think they're werewolves. What are they then? I mumbled. My eyes itched and felt swollen from lack of sleep, and my tongue felt like cotton. Mason opened up the book and furrowed his brows. Ah, uh, they're called Wahila. They're supposed to be large wolves with flat heads, though in here it says they're much smaller than the ones outside, and they have light fur. It says they're from the Northwest Territories, but I guess we're far enough north some could be down here too. I don't give a shit about all of that, I snapped. Skip to the important part. He shot me a glare, but continued on. They bite people's heads off, Tuck. They bite them clean off your body. A chill ran down my spine as my heart began to beat faster. They bite heads off? Yeah. I mean, while you were asleep, I just got to thinking about them being werewolves and all and thought it didn't make much sense. I mean, it hasn't been a full moon for these many nights in a row. And where would they live when they were in their human forms? Nobody's around here for probably another ten or more clicks down the road. Does it say how to kill them? No, and I don't know if guns work or not. Well, we'll have to just find out when we can see them better, I guess. So, what are we gonna do? I laughed. Fuck if I know. Lay low. The corners of his mouth twitched upwards, though only momentarily. We spent the day doing absolutely nothing as we'd been doing. And though our stomachs rumbled and growled, neither of us had the heart to step outside, away from the safety of the wooden walls of the cabin. We'd run out of firewood, too, and resorted to hacking apart the Christmas tree to keep the flames alight, while great tracks in the snow circled the cabin outside. When night came and the howls seemed to bellow in our very ears, and the beasts roamed ever closer, Mason offered to stay up through the night since I had stayed up the previous night. I did so while the banging shutters and rustling trees fueled my dreams. I awoke to gunshots. Spiraling instinctively in the bedsheets, I grasped at the nightstand and steadied myself, whipping my head about. My eyes finally rested on Mason standing in front of the open window, with the rifle pointed down below while snow blasted onto his face and across the floor. The fuck you doing? I gasped. Trying to kill these sons of bitches. They're closer. He fired another round, the sound causing my ears to ring in the confined bedroom. Snow's too thick. Need to get a better view. Mason closed the window and reached for the door. I scrambled to my feet and quickly pulled on my coat and boots. You're not going out there, are you? I asked. He flung the door open allowing it to crack against the wall. Yep. You're fucking crazy. They'll rip your goddamn head off. He ignored me, and I raced down the stairs after him. He'd already moved the china cabinet away from the front door, but I wedged myself desperately between him and it. But before I could say anything, Mason pointed the rifle at my head, his eyes dead and stony. Get the hell out of my way, Tuck, before I take your head off. Mason, don't be a fool. They'll kill you the moment you step outside that door. So what? They'll kill us anyhow. Only a matter of time. You hear that wind? That's the sound of death, marching right up to our doorstep. We can try to make it out of here. We'll leave in the morning. They don't like daylight, remember? 
We'll make a run for it. He gripped the rifle tighter and worked his jaw. You really think they're scared of the sun? They put Ricky's head on the doorstep in the day, didn't they? Because it sure as hell wasn't out there when I found the meat gone. They won't give a damn about the time. They won't let us leave. And if I'm gonna die, then I'm gonna take as many of them as I can with me. You can hole up in here and draw it out, or you can come with me. Sweat trickled down my forehead as he glared at me, the gun still pointed at my brain. I said nothing. With a jerk, he raised the gun and fired it just above my head and pointed it back down at me again. Get the hell out of my way, he snarled. I stepped aside and allowed him to go outside to the front porch, quickly slamming the door shut behind him and dragging the china cabinet in front of it. I'm not letting you back in, I hollered. You know that, right? I don't want in anyways. I heard the first gunshot, followed by another. I raced upstairs to the window, grabbing the rifle by the bed. But by the time I'd cocked it and pointed it out the window, his headless body was already being dragged back to the trees. I fired twice at the wolf, dragging him away, and while I was certain both shots met their target, the creature was unfazed. The night was silent after that, with only the sounds of the wind and crackling fire to be my company. I didn't dare look back out the window, and instead sat in the chair, tapping my foot and twitching my fingers. My mind was numb as I listened to the air and replayed the events of the past two weeks in my mind on a loop. The back of my neck prickled as the static encroached upon the house. When I saw the first rays of the morning sunlight struggling to wriggle their way through the shutters, I eased my way upstairs, not wishing to disturb the electric silence. I made my way to the window to see that the sky was clear and red, and that Mason's naked body had been dragged back out in front of the cabin, covered in blood and feces. His head was nowhere to be seen. I quickly shut the window again, and went downstairs to throw the last of the Christmas tree into the fire, complete with the star made of eggnog containers. I caved into my hunger and ate the last of the food. The remainder of that day was spent much in the same way as I'd spent the night, though I found myself being unable to sit still in the chair as the static in the air grew in intensity, making my ears ring like sirens. Every sound seemed cataclysmic, and every breath felt as though it were my last. When the night returned once more, so did the wolves, their paws grazing mere feet away from the door, growling and crying at me, deafening the relatively peaceful silence. I tried to fire at them again with the rifle, but the snow and cold were at the worst they had been yet, and I could scarcely see their silhouettes below. Though, I think even if the night was clear, I would have seen that bullets do nothing. Knowing that there was nothing more I could do except wait, it was then that I began to write this in both the hopes that somebody finds it, as well as simply a means to keep my mind somewhat sane while death waits not twenty feet away. I was surprised to find myself still alive this morning, though night has come yet again. I fear this is the last, for they have grown ever so closer, scratching and pawing at the walls. They do not speak. I think they want me to hear that they have come. I can't even see them outside as the roof overhangs them. I've piled all of the furniture downstairs in front of the doors and am now locked in the bedroom, 
where I have similarly barricaded the door with the beds and desk as I write this upon the floor, with the last candle nearly gone. Just now, I heard the sound of splintering wood. I think it was the door. I have my pistol trained at the door with my left hand, while with my right I write this down. I know it seems foolish to do so, but it is the only way I can escape this horror in the slightest. It feels more like a story than reality within these pages. The furniture is being dragged away from the door, the low grumbling of wood on wood shaking the floor. Innumerable claws slowly and methodically scrape and clack, while the low breath of these giants grows ever closer. They are climbing the stairs, and now they've paused right outside. The Carolers by Mac Ralston. The following is a written account of the oral tradition of the Carolers phenomena. There is no known region or time frame of origin in regard to this tradition. Rather, this written account will pull folklore, urban myth, and eyewitness accounts from a variety of places and times. The Carolers, sometimes referred to as the Wassailers, is a phenomenon that occurs predominantly during the month of December. However, some reports suggest that occurrences in late November and early January have also been recorded. The phenomenon appears to be supernatural in origin, and there appears to be no certain way to trigger the occurrence. However, every witness to the apparition S has had one crucial similarity. All of those who had been visited by the carolers had recently donated clothing to a local charity or drive, with only minor exceptions. Given the seasonal timing of the occurrence, surrounding or on the Christmas holiday, the clothing in question is often wintertime outerwear, including but not limited to jackets, coats, sweaters, vests, mittens, gloves, scarves, beanies, bonnets, earmuffs, snow boots, and other assorted cold weather attire. Additionally, it should be noted that, while every eyewitness of the phenomenon had recently donated such apparel, not every donor was visited by the apparition, S, though it is still unsure as to why this is the case. According to varying legends and the mouths of those who had allegedly seen the carolers, the apparition, S, would appear sometime after the donation had taken place, always at night and on nights where the temperature was considerably low, often snowing and, in some instances, below zero. While the timing of the appearances would vary from location to location, many caroler sightings would occur during the middle of the night, around midnight to three in the morning. Eyewitnesses would describe hearing a faint, nearly inaudible sound upon waking from their slumbers. After some moments would pass, this sound would rise considerably in volume and become intelligible, though muffled. As described, the growing sound was that of either a voice or several, depending on the quantity of clothing articles donated prior. The voice, S, was, were often described as angelic or otherworldly, and would reportedly be heard singing Christmas carols from outside the home. Hence, the phenomenon is referred to as the carolers. As such, the following list catalogs every known song reportedly sung by the apparitions. Although the catalog is incomplete and constantly being updated as new sightings occur and new songbooks, music sheets are discovered.
here we come. A caroling, silent night, good King Wenceslas, adestes fideles, it came upon a midnight clear. God rest ye merry gentlemen. Angels, we have heard on high, Coventry carol, we three kings, in the bleak midwinter, and the little drummer boy. Upon hearing any of these carols, or any undocumented ones not aforementioned, many of those who encountered the phenomenon would follow the sound to its point of origin, typically outside the homes or apartment's front door, where the witness in question would see what appeared to be the clothing that they had donated prior, suspended in the air and seemingly worn by an invisible person s, with the sound emanating from where a mouth should be, often beneath a beanie or somewhere within a hooded coat. Upon the completion of the carol, these garments would then drop to the ground and the phenomenon would end. With the exception of a large family of eight from Nebraska, most sightings of the apparition-s consisted of anywhere from one to six carolers outside the front door, with the average being three. Due to the nature of typical clothing donations and drives, the outfits worn by the apparition-s are often incomplete, with some being mere scarves four feet off the ground, to others, often visitors of more generous benefactors, being fully bundled with the exception of a face. Any and all appearances of the caroler's phenomenon, despite differences in attire or the amount thereof, behaved in a similar manner. The apparition-s would appear, sing, and depart, with only a few rare exceptions that will be listed below. Mary Thomas, a 68-year-old woman from Des Plaines, Illinois, is the only recorded individual visited by the carolers who did not report the sighting herself. Rather, the sighting, though not confirmed to have been the carolers but highly likely, was made by a neighbor who claimed that they had heard a loud banging sound sometime around 2.30 a.m. during the morning of December 23, 1988. Upon donning a robe and heading over to the Thomas residence, the neighbor discovered the front door to be wide open, a pile of old clothes littering the front porch, and Mary Thomas's body lying on the hallway rug. Thomas had suffered a heart attack sometime between two in the morning and when the neighbor had found her. Months prior, Thomas had surgically received a stent in her heart, and because of the outpouring of donations on her behalf and her weight loss due to her health condition, decided to gift much of her old clothing to a local charity for the holidays. Much of that clothing was discovered on Thomas's front porch that very morning. Eric Anderson, a 30-year-old from Liverpool, England, was declared legally dead in 2007 after being considered a missing person for seven years. In the year 2000, after not returning to work for a period of three days, Anderson's apartment was visited by local police, who discovered not only the home to be vacant, but no signs of forced entry or foul play present within. Instead, investigators were only left with an empty bed, Anderson's pajamas beneath the covers, and nothing to suggest that he had fled the premises. All of Anderson's clothes and suitcases were accounted for, and a wallet containing his ID and $600 in cash were retrieved from the nightstand. Though no official connection to the phenomenon ever surfaced, Anderson's eventual obituary did describe him as a charitable man. Despite this claim, however, little evidence of such generosity was conveyed in Anderson's financial statements. 
Additionally, these statements never once suggested that Anderson had any children nor was paying any form of child support. Yet, in spite of this, ten children's winter garments were discovered surrounding Anderson's bed on the night the police investigated his disappearance. One of the earliest documented cases of the phenomenon, occurring during a midnight mass at the Basilica of St. Luke in North Bay, Ontario on Christmas Eve, 1895, describes a candlelit service that ended with a choral rendition of Silent Night. As the first verse came to an end and the second began, the congregation within the small church heard a loud swell of voices that rattled the stained glass windows and surrounded the entire building. Many of those within ceased their singing, but according to a letter written from the basilica to a neighboring one, the heavenly hosts continued in their praises until the final word was uttered. When the voices had finished the song, many of the congregants in attendance, led by candlelight, made their way outside and into the snowstorm that awaited them. Even those too fearful to trek beyond the warmth of the building rejoiced as the arms of their brothers and sisters in Christ carried bundles of blankets, hand-knitted sweaters, and other gifts from the Lord into the sanctuary. Many of these gifts would be distributed to the needy and poor the following Christmas morning, though to this day the origins of these articles remain a mystery. Many paranormal investigators and some religious scholars have concluded that, if the claims of the phenomenon should be considered truthful, the carolers are mere harbingers who, rather than offer warnings for the future, offer gratitude for the past. However, others, far more skeptical of purely good-willed beings of Yule, suggest that the carolers, if they exist at all, may also serve as vengeful Christmas-time spirits. The Cold Testament by Sean Cognition Every time a bell rings When Elizabeth Ackerley ran into the alleyway, she turned and pressed against the wall. Red and blue lights flew past, shining into the alleyway for only a brief moment. She had been chased over and over again for most of her life, off on a bad foot, as most would kindly put it. You see, Carrington didn't have many citizens. Located in Elkhart County, Indiana, this town was only comprised of about 7,000 citizens. Elizabeth was the kind of person they all disliked. She was a thief and had been imprisoned multiple times in her life. Only 25 years old, almost all of it was in and out of custody. The Second Great War had only ended a year earlier. This was 1946. Where most people celebrated a victory, she just continued living. Filthy cloths covering her, including a brown coat her mother had given her. God rest her soul. Everything she owned was either taken or given to her. But her thieving was not why she was wanted. Coating her was a thin blanket of snow, but that was not matched by the town as a whole. In fact, around her was a thick sheet of snow and ice, covering anything and everything. It was cold. It was desperate. The desperate and the freezing do drastic things to get by. No, this time she had gone too far, at least in sight of witnesses. Placing a small bloody knife in a pocket on the inside of her coat, she covered her face with her hands in disbelief as another police vehicle, on the search for her, drove past. 
Houses sat all along the street, potential witnesses that could have seen her flee into the alleyway. The paranoia began to eat at her. She wouldn't say she regretted it, but she definitely regretted being seen. She never said she was a saint, not even as Christmas Eve touched into Christmas Day. He was in her face. He had assaulted her. If there is one thing you should know, it's that you don't make many friends living that life. When you live in and out of apartments, sometimes outside, your plans don't always work out. Some of your victims might not like getting mugged. Some might be extremely violent, even on Christmas Eve. There were dozens of ways they would recognize her, though. Her long blonde hair, her pale skin and blue eyes, her clothes, and even possibly her height, to name a few. She couldn't find any plausible way out in her head. There was one thing that never came to mind, though, at least not in any suitable manner. The odd sound of ringing bells, light, piercing bells, sounding just like the kind that come attached in bulk to a single string for decoration. She couldn't see anyone around her, nor could she hear footsteps. The world around her, in fact, seemed still. The second she pulled her hands from her face, a blinding flash of light came in front of her, causing her to put them back in place. Though she could hardly make sense of the situation, the light only made her think of one thing. They found me. Oddly, instead of the typical hands up, all she heard was something she could only relate to a flag violently blowing in the wind. Instead of the cold handcuffs being thrown on her wrists, she only felt warm. When she pulled her hands away from her face, she saw him. Standing in front of her was a man well over seven feet tall, covered in a shining white robe. Behind him, two wings, each full of white feathers. When she tried to find his face, all she could find was the skull of a bird on his shoulders. Elizabeth Ackerley, thou art visited by the Father's angel, the man said, only feeding her fear. She would have pulled the knife out of her coat and tried to defend herself, but she was forced to believe him. Not only had he appeared, and not only did his form certainly fit the cliché, but the snow, which should have been falling without a care, was still, simply floating in place in the air. There was no wind, no sound, and no livelihood in the neighborhood around her. Why are you here? she asked, her heart beating furiously in shock. She couldn't comprehend what was happening, but she had to speak. Thou art chosen by none other than thy king. I have been tasked with delivering the chance of a better life to thou, but first your story must be given. Why story? Why do you want my story? To fill the pages, child. Doth thou have the ability to speak thy own past? She wasn't about to disobey the will of the angel, especially not in this circumstance. Not all thieves are idiots. Well, I was born in the Big Apple, New York, yeah? I didn't have much help, you know. I was thrown into this world and fought to survive. Bad upbringing, that sort of story. Made my way down here with some friends that aren't friends anymore. What of yourself now? What do you see when you look around you in this moment? She thought hard, but couldn't contain herself. Holding in the perfect balance of fear and regret, she spilled herself out to the angel. I've made a mistake! Please, forgive me! She said, 
with a tear spawning from each eye, falling on her pale cheeks. The angel raised his finger to her lips. His touch was warm and brought calm into her soul. You've put yourself into a bad situation, child. You will be gifted by thy grace, a chance of redemption. They will not know your face, nor your ability, young one. Taking his finger from her lips, the angel bent to the ground. He grabbed two hands of snow and brought himself back up. With his right hand, he threw the snow on her face like a fine powder. When the snow cleared from her face, there was a new one in its place. He showed her the new face by spreading his now empty hand, opening a small white circular portal, which stunningly allowed a perfect reflection on the other side. Her blonde hair was replaced with flowing cherry red hair, her cheeks were now rosy, and her skin tone was a more healthy shade, yet still pale. The jawline itself had been reshaped, now a more defined point. Her clothes were no longer dirty, and she could feel that the weight of the knife was gone from her coat's pocket. Doth thou desire where the bright portal leads, or where the dark portal leads? He asked, seemingly rhetorically. It's beautiful. You did this for me? She questioned. Without responding, the angel took the snow in his left hand and raised his right hand. The snow began to glow a bright right, causing her to squint her eyes. The pain eventually grew, to which she shut them fully. When she reopened them, the angel was holding a black book. The book was of great size and appeared to be made of some sort of black leather sewn together with a light red thread. A chain linked around the book twice, in the shape of an X. Beneath the chain, a deep red design glowed, but what it fully looked like was impossible to guess. This book has the power of both your guilt and your pleasure. It contains the essence of both malevolence and benevolence. You must use it wisely. Your new start must be used wisely, I might add. In another great flash, he was gone. The book simply fell straight to the ground. Looking around, she saw the snow fall in front of her. Everything seemed normal. The sound of automobiles and voices of others were heard once more. She heard the rattle of chains, which drew her back to the book. The chains were unraveled and loosely sitting in the snow around the book. She walked over and picked it up within both hands at once. It was about a third the size of her body and weighed about 20 pounds. The red design was that of the Ouroboros, and within the Ouroboros, a crude representation of the brain. Unsure of how to feel about any of this, she, still filled with adrenaline, carefully walked out of the alleyway. The gift of giving. As she turned around with her new possession, she felt a strange, coursing power run through her arms. She poked her head out of the alleyway and looked both ways. The only person she could see was a single homeless man shoving a near-empty shopping cart. She opened the book, showing the first page. Printed on a strange, thin, yet leather-like page, just a single word. Ayanri. As she read it to herself, a heavenly glow came from the page as the word turned from deep red to a clean white. Raising from the page and leaving a misty trail behind it, the light worked its way directly across the street from the alleyway. It was a beautiful house, high-end for sure, 
bright blue and white coloration, Christmas decorations hung all over it. She couldn't understand what the light was attempting to show her, but she felt an urge, an unplaceable, tormenting urge, the sort of urge only the taboo can truly give a person. She had to get a closer look. Taking her first cautious step out of the alleyway and onto the sidewalk, the homeless man apparently couldn't see the light at all as he was looking in her direction, now sitting on the cold, snow-covered asphalt. As she went to take her first step onto the road, she jumped at a car going well over the speed limit speeding past her, nearly hitting her. Cursing to herself, she watched as two police vehicles drove at the same speed past her. Had they really not noticed her? The angel's change wasn't some sort of cruel joke. She felt joyous, but also filled with curiosity. What of the book? She ran across the road as fast as she could before whipping around. The homeless man was in the fetal position, attempting to keep warm. His cart had only a few cans, most of which were most likely empty. She felt terrible. She had been there. Curiosity beats sympathy, though. Running up to the largest window in the front of the house, she could see a family sitting around a radio, listening to some sort of show. The usual nuclear family of a father, mother, and a son. Fireplace burning next to them and a couch next to a staircase going up. It had a nice brown and white interior. A nice piano sat in the hollow place underneath the higher portion of the stairwell. They had a beautiful Christmas tree in the corner between the fireplace and doorway, but back enough the flames did not risk burning it. The husband was a large man and would pose a threat very easily. Short brown hair that was all facing the back, he looked like he walked into a gym years ago and never walked out. The wife was just as much as a looker in her scarlet red dress with her long ebony hair reaching past her shoulders. Their son, your typical kid, looked about six, very short black hair. When she started imagining all of the things she could find in there, the light came once more from the book and went around the house. She reluctantly followed. Running between the house and the seemingly vacant house next door, she entered their surprisingly empty backyard. There was a back door entrance and another window. And Looking in the window, she could see that the room on the other side was the kitchen and that the family was in the room beyond that through an empty doorway. The light continued to the door and she followed. She couldn't exactly think of what it wanted her to do, but she went with what she assumed. Putting her hand on the doorknob, she attempted to open the door, only to find out it was locked. Pulling her hand away, the light covered the doorknob before moving into the keyhole. A faint click was heard, and the doorknob turned by itself. When the door opened, no sound was created. Now, it was obvious what it wanted of her, but she could not piece together why. Why would the angel want her to enter their home uninvited? Was her lifestyle not that evil in his eyes? Through the questions and confusion, she pressed on. When she entered the house, the door silently pushed itself shut behind her, and the warmth of the house comforted her. A checkered floor was below her, a counter and fridge to her left, and to her right, the entrance to the living room, mistletoe hanging above. She could hear some sort of radio show playing rather loudly, but couldn't focus enough to make out what it was. 
Opening the book to the second page this time, she was able to see the text come to the page, seeping down into shape like a formless liquid. Luke, 46, and he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. It was at that moment her wicked little heart came into action. Her brain was in compliance as she very carefully attempted to grab a knife out of the knife holder beside her. Just as her hand was about to touch it, a severe pain took her over. It took all of her strength and perseverance to not scream out in agony, but a light squeal did escape her mouth. There was no way they didn't hear it. She had to act now, with or without a weapon. She was frustrated beyond belief, but that's when she heard a metallic ring right in front of her. Looking up, she could see the knife floating in the air. She couldn't wrap her head around what was going on, but as she thought of a direction, the knife moved in that way. Now, she felt better. Without her mind consenting, the refrigerator opened loudly and a chunk of cold turkey flew towards her, which she caught. What the hell was that? The father exclaimed. The father. He would be a threat. He appeared to be large and capable. The book's red, glowing design began to move in its place. The Ouroboros began circling the brain on the leather. The knife went into the room at a great speed, before only screams could be heard. The wails of the mother and child signified that it was now time to act. Stepping into the living room, she took a bite of the turkey and leaned against the doorway's right side. The mother was holding the child, which was attempting to shake the body of the father. There was the kitchen knife sticking out of his right eye. The familiar blow was covering the front door and windows, which she assumed meant no sound from inside could be heard by the rest of the town, nor could they escape. Now'd be the time for you to get quiet. The mother wrapped her arms around her child as tight as she could, burying his head in her embrace. On the couch now. They complied very fast. It wasn't more than a moment before they were both sitting on the couch. The knife flew out of the father's eye socket with a liquid suction sound and remained in the air. The look of absolute horror and sadness almost found a place of sympathy in her heart. Almost. You, she said, pointing to the mother. Go get everything worth a penny or your boy's next, yeah? I won't leave him, the mother retaliated, holding him even tighter. The book floated out of Elizabeth's hands and opened to page three. On it, three names. Triton Harmond Vanessa. Harmond Noah Harmond. Both hands now free, she pointed to the fireplace behind her. Unless you want this to run free, you'll get your ass moving. Kissing her son between her tears and sobs, she got up from the couch. Don't hurt him, I beg of you. Move. She sprinted up the stairs. She grabbed the book with her left hand out of the hair and pulled it towards herself. Flipping it one page further to page four, she began to read to herself amid the woman's loud shuffling of items upstairs. At the behest of their deaths, their black hearts will first pump red blood. When the void takes their consciousness, their twisted psyche will first dream of paradise. When they are met with the choice, they will originally suffer. 
The first sin isn't birthed in history, but with each birth and with the first breath of sentience. That is when he must... Her reading was cut off by the wife rushing downstairs, holding as much jewelry in her hands as she could cup. She could feel herself begin to be compelled from her left hand, then the rest of her body. The book's glow once again became blue, and the Ouroboros moved around the brain. Speaking in a voice she'd never heard before, she had no power over her speech, nor the manipulation the book would bring. Buyu Uru Alik, said the deep, intimidating voice from her lips. The jewelry fell from her hands as she lifted into the air. Her son attempted to run from the room, but he also was lifted into the air, facing his mother. Her dress was peeled off in a single moment, along with everything else covering her, and thrown into the fire which consumed them. Her cold flesh was revealed, along with her bust. Struggling to both lower herself and cover her naked body, she was turned upside down, feet in the air. Her legs pulled in opposing directions, until they were practically opposite of each other, flat. It hurts! It hurts! She yelled in panic as she was pulled in two directions at once. Then, without any warning, she was slammed upwards into the ceiling. Her entire body became a liquid collection of gore, with the only solid sections being small collections of the matter left from her organs. The blood did not fall, however. Instead, it stayed, coating the ceiling. The once white, pure ceiling was now a red show of raw power. The sun was slammed across the room, into the front door. The knife dropped to the ground, but the book remained in flight. The piano, however, opened. A single piece of piano wire tore out of it and drifted over to Elizabeth. Before she knew it, it was stretched sideways, between Elizabeth and the boy, at the floating boy's stomach level. It was at this point that she regained control of herself, but a voice was now haunting her head, repeating her name obsessively. Elizabeth! 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 The boy was sobbing uncontrollably out of trauma and fear. Nothing in this universe, nor the next, could undo the amount of damage that had been done on him. Elizabeth, Elizabeth, Elizabeth. She made sure the piano wire was straight and raised it so that it would give a fast death by decapitation. Elizabeth, Elizabeth, Elizabeth. The wire flew forward before the body and head of the boy fell to the ground. You're one of us. Have a holy jolly Christmas. All of the gore and red ichor fell from the ceiling in one wave, one splash. Everything in the room, Elizabeth and the book included, was coated in the thick product. Out of the fireplace, the heat began to grow exceptionally hot and the flames began to rampage in their spot. In another burst, the fire stretched outside of the fireplace for just an instant, forcing her to shroud her eyes form the brightness. When she opened them, the room around her was on fire. There was no way the fire had naturally spread across the room like this, as all four walls were burning, yet none showed signs of having already been burned. When she turned around to run from the scene, even leaving the jewelry behind, she was scared out of her skin by the angel she had seen once before, coming out of a swirling red portal behind her, only his arm, head, and part of his torso being visible. There was only one difference.
His once white robe was now a light blue. He grabbed her by the face with one hand, which covered her face completely, and lifted her into the air. You fell to the temptation of the Nekelmu, as thy black heart was beyond corrupt. Your redemption was cast away the moment you acted out of your own will, rather than the Father's will. Thou hast chosen thy own fate, one which will have you bound as one of the evil spirits within the Nekelmu, after you have had the proper punishment for your actions. She attempted to speak, but his hand muffled any and all words from ever being heard. The Nekelmu, however, repeated her strongest thought, even though dozens of questions were in her mind. What kind of angel are you? To which the angel replied, Samael. At that moment, he pulled her into the portal which closed behind them. The Nekelmu, however, picked up one last wish from Elizabeth as she was pulled into the portal. It enacted it and then fell to the ground, or rather, through the ground. As the homeless man saw the fire, he attempted to run away, dragging his cart behind him. A large wind blew, coating both him and his cart in snow. When the snow cleared, he was wearing a thick winter coat along with padded pants, his pockets full of the jewelry on the floor that was presented to Elizabeth. When he turned around to grab his cart amid the shock, he screamed in joy, thanking God for his new bounty. It was now full of new canned food and supplies. Sleepy Pines by Cold Relics. I am writing this story in response to another story that has recently made its way to the internet called Dead Mall. As unbelievable as it sounds, I think that it likely happened. But I don't know where Mike and Jenna are, and I'm not sure if I can provide many answers to what transpired at Sleepy Pines Mall in 2013. What I do have is my own first-hand experience from when the mall was still open and fairly busy. Past its prime, yes, but still functioning as a place to shop and be with friends. Right off the bat, I should mention that some of my memories around these events may be unreliable. I do have very good long-term recall normally. I can remember things that happened when I was just two years old. However, these memories were buried and forgotten until recently. I think I should start by talking about how I remember the mall itself. For a long time, I hadn't at all. Not really. I only had vague childhood images within a fog of confusion, existing in a place where I couldn't be sure if I was misremembering a dream or something real. I always knew that I had visited multiple times as a kid. We have pictures to prove it. I think I even have a few toys and clothes as keepsakes that we must have bought there. But until I read about Mike and Jenna's exploration of the mall's dying husk, I couldn't recall anything truly solid about my own visits, like the memories were always hiding just above a dark storm cloud. I had partially blocked out my history with the place, because something traumatic happened to me there and it would have defined my childhood and growth had it been allowed to actively circle around in my mind during those crucial years. Let's start with how innocent my own journey to the past began. The modern classic movie Home Alone had a mall scene. I mean, it did, right? Even now, I can't let go of the belief that such a scene existed. 
Before I take a detour into cursed lost media territory, I'll explain. I first saw the movie in November 1990 when it had just come out. Though I still don't have many clear memories of the showing, even after my mental floodgates were opened. I know I went to the sequel when it arrived as well. But I only ever saw either movie and parts on TV for several years after that, as they steadily ingrained themselves as American holiday movie staples. I think I was 12 when I finally watched it in full again, on a videotape we rented for a family Christmas get-together. At an age when it's easier to remember and understand your personal history and the world around you, the fuzzy uncertainty of all things that we have when we're younger goes away. So I can clearly recollect asking my parents about the mall scene. What? My mom replies, right around the time the bandits start getting tortured by a psychopath kid. Honey, there is no mall scene. I couldn't accept that. I remembered seeing it when we first all went to the film together at the mall in 1990. It was probably the only part of the movie I could remember pretty well from that viewing in a dark, crowded theater. And as the credits rolled, this time in a living room with a roaring fireplace, I was perplexed. My older brothers and sister called me dumb for getting something wrong about what was clearly one of the most important hallmarks in cinema. Obviously they would, being annoying teenagers. Years later, when DVDs came out, I eventually rented the movie again and watched the deleted scenes included in the extras, certain I'd vindicate myself. My thumb was on my old flip phone's digits, itching to call up my sister who was in college at that point, just so I could rub it in her face. But the scene never showed up, and for some reason, this persistently bothered me much more than it should have. I even talked to my parents about it and asked them to think really hard about the day we saw it back at Sleepy Pines. Had we seen some rare cut of the film, or was I just losing my mind? The thing is, there was a point in this conversation where they both kind of looked at each other, clearly worried for just a second. Then they assured me that I was probably thinking of another scene, and my young mind back then got it mixed up with other movies, or the experience of seeing it at a mall to begin with. To be fair, there is a part of the movie where Kevin McAllister, while on his own, goes to a store to act grown up and buy some essentials. But it's not at all like what I've seen in my head, which was more elaborate and featured his entire family. I had always figured that the segment took place before the infamous pizza dinner that gets Kevin sent to the attic. Kevin has been dragged out to the mall for some last minute holiday shopping, where his siblings and cousins get all the attention. His mom forgets her credit card, so the dad has to pay for everything. The parents are out of character, acting agitated and impatient, and they end up frightening Kevin almost as much as that childhood nightmare fuel basement furnace. At some point, Kevin stops and looks into a dark hallway. It's some part of the mall that everyone seems to ignore, and camera tricks make it look much more ominous than it should be. The unlit corridor becomes one more thing in the movie that scares Kevin's young mind. And that's it. I was never sure just how long this shopping scene lasted, and I can't recall how it ended. This deleted scene that I suppose really does not exist is important to my own story, and how I once perceived what I experienced that day as I grew up. Seeing as how I'm telling a story that deserves a proper build-up, I'll start at the beginning. I don't expect everyone to believe that these things really happened, 
but at least writing all of this down may help me finally move on. It was late November, just before Thanksgiving and Black Friday. While not quite as big in 1990 as it got to be later on, the shopping weekend was still the annual main event for businesses back then, and malls across America were ground zero. My parents couldn't stand those sorts of crowds, so our visit to Sleepy Pines that year happened a couple days before the turkey was served. I grew up in Ohio and not the American Northeast where the mall existed, but many of my grandparents and aunts and uncles lived there, so I was used to taking road trips with my family several times a year. This time we were spending Thanksgiving weekend with my dad's brother, his wife, and their two kids. My cousins were both a bit older than me and my siblings, the girl being 15 and the boy 17. They were fun to hang out with when I was younger, but by then they were jaded teenagers too cool to acknowledge me. Similarly, my siblings were also separated by two years. My sister was the oldest of us at 13, and as my clothes were mostly her hand-me-downs, I typically show up in our family photos from those years in t-shirts with outdated 80s cartoon characters staring at the camera. She usually just ignored me, or at most called me annoying. Meanwhile, my brothers, 11 and 9, often worked together to plot up new ways to tease or prank me. I was nearly eight, but still the baby. My parents doted on me when they could, but were so busy with the other troublemakers that they had little time to give me guidance or structure in those days before my siblings started heading off to college. So it often felt like I was given free reign and could get away with anything. But that also meant that if I got myself into trouble, I'd usually have to get out of it myself. I think that early independence toughened me up at least a bit more than most kids of that age. Still, most everyone cries the first time they scrape their knee. Then the pain and fear aren't so bad with each new injury. I could be as terrified by an unfamiliar experience as any kid. I'd just get over it fast and be able to face those scary moments head on should they happen again. I like to put on a brave face against adversity and that gradually helped me get my brothers off my back once they realized that I wasn't going to be the butt of their jokes anymore. There are some things, though, that you simply can't get over, and you either have the fortune to learn how to forget, or you're haunted, and maybe change for the worst. Thankfully, I did forget, for a long time, and while it mattered most. As an adult who has gone through other hardships over the years, I can better weather suddenly remembered trauma that is separated by such time and distance. I now reside in Hawaii with my boyfriend. I have a good life and supportive friends, so don't worry about me. I only wish it were possible to go back in time and tell my seven-year-old self that everything would be okay that night. Somehow, I survived it. Though my resurfaced memories are spotty, so I may never be certain of every detail do my best to fill in the gaps. Shortly after we arrived at my uncle's house on a chilly afternoon dotted with snow flurries, all seven of us kids piled into my parents' minivan. Being the youngest, I was already used to sitting in the back row, but not so much being squished in the middle seat between my sister and cousin for an hour-long drive in a vehicle with barely working heat. It sucks. Nothing starts a big family visit shopping day like being thoughtlessly crammed in among kids that are all older than you. It feels like you don't exist. 
but Sleepy Pines on the outset of the holidays was a sight for my young eyes. The parking lot was nearly full despite my parents' effort to beat the rush. The mall was packed with shoppers carrying bags full of presents, and the ceiling, walls, and storefronts were decorated immaculately for the season with ribbons and giant candy canes. In the atrium by the fountain and mural was the mall centerpiece for the next month, a big Christmas tree that nearly reached the skylight, covered in more ornaments than my entire extended family would ever own. To think there was a time when most malls in America looked so glorious towards the end of the year. Time lasts longer when you're young, so to me it must have felt like we had shopped for eight hours, but it was probably closer to half that. We went into a dozen clothing stores, along with a couple shoe and bookstores. I know a few places were closed up, but like I said, the mall must have still at least been profitable back then. All of this shopping was boring for me and my brothers, but my cousins and sister loved it all and made the three of us wait around while they tried out new threads. None of us had these new things called Game Boys yet, so we were stuck with coloring books and small eight-color crayon boxes for entertainment while the teenagers had their fashion fun. Once the four adults finally noticed how bored some of us were, we got to visit KB Toys for a whole ten minutes. Being with happy kids our age and getting to see all the shiny toys we wanted for Christmas recharged me and my brother's spirits, at least until the teens started complaining that we were going to run out of time to check out the rest of the important stores, what with a movie coming up. The parents wanted everyone to stick together all day, too, so it wasn't like we could split up, with one group doing the monotonous clothes stuff and the rest of us getting to spend more time at the toy store or arcade. When you get that bored from unending tedium as a youngster, your mind starts to wander and you look for anything at all that might stimulate that need for new information. You may start to notice things that you normally wouldn't, like how surprisingly clean a mall might be. Exquisitely so, in fact. No, seriously. Spend enough time on the floor filling in other people's drawings with colored wax and you learn to respect the cleanliness of a carpet. That small detail, the lack of stains in the store carpets or the flawless wood floors was always one of those random childhood memories of the place that stuck with me. Even the pillars and tile out in the mall space was perfection, all polished and shiny. It was unusual enough to stand out in my mind, that kind of eye and effort for spotlessness in what was just another middling consumer marketplace in rural America. You wouldn't expect such detailed workmanship in any building that didn't already have gold leafing on everything. Yet somehow, I only ever saw one custodian during the whole long visit. Yes, places have cleaning crews that work at night, but this guy somehow struck me as someone who did everything on his own and liked it that way. Sleepy Pines was the old man's second home, his pride and joy. I just don't know how he would have done it even if he worked there 24-7. I must have spotted him walking around four or five times over the course of the day, trying his best to sink into the background in his beige uniform. I repeatedly saw him picking up trash on the floor, and he took on this angry scowl in each instance that made him look scary. As people passed by and ignored him, he seemed like he was cursing the world and the filth they left behind. There was something else I noticed. There were security cameras all over the place. And this was 1990, 
when they were often less ambiguous and hiding inside ceiling-mounted domes, so they were easily visible despite being mounted high up. It didn't feel like the shoppers paid them any attention or cared. Maybe all of the posted, smile, you're being recorded. Signs put them at ease, like this level of security was normal. But like the custodian, I only ever saw a single patrolling security officer. It was as if they considered their CCTV system enough to keep the place safe and ward off shoplifting. I can remember my younger self thinking that the worst stop of the day was Dillard's, one of the mall's two anchors and a huge department store full of clothes and more. My sister, mom, aunt, and cousins must have tried on half the outfits. Meanwhile, the rest of us wandered about the store, and at some point I caught my dad and uncle staring off into space as if they were contemplating on the chain of events that had led them to spending at least an hour there. The memory that sticks out the most was our visit to the perfume section, where one of them remembered that their wife wanted some expensive fragrance for Christmas. I've never forgotten how the smell there was so intense that my brothers gagged, or that I had a coughing fit which lasted for a while. Oh, and now that I'm writing this out and thinking about the nefarious perfume lady in the Dead Mall story, I can suddenly see her, and her smile, again in my mind along with something else that probably traumatized me. As my dad, uncle, and brothers were all too manly to sample the perfume, I got to be the guinea pig. That large lady must have dripped a half dozen smelly liquids on my wrists before the big, strong men finally picked one. I'm sure my brothers just loved that. The planned last stop of the day, at least before seeing Home Alone, was back at the atrium by the fountain. Santa's chair was set up, but he wasn't around yet. I'm guessing not until December, so I didn't get to sit on his lap and ask for something basic like my own new clothes. But there was one thing that I got to finally do, as a reward for being so patient all day. I got to ride on the holiday train ride. For those too young to remember something that might still exist at some malls, but were once more prolific, there used to be miniature trains that ran on a small looping track through a faux winter wonderland. There was a long line, and our movie was starting soon. I think we already had the tickets, but I could tell that everyone else was anxious about getting in on time and finding good seats. This wasn't helped by the fact that my brothers were too old to go on the ride and got irritated because they had to wait on me. Even though the younger of the two could have gone on it, I vividly recall that at the time, he always insisted on acting as grown up as his big bro and wouldn't have ridden it out of principle. And knowing how I was back then, I must have felt guilty about it, like I was doing something selfish. There was one thing about that mall that really creeped me out. It did so when I visited the first few times when I was very young and still does when I think back on it. The mural in the atrium by the fountain of the settlers and the natives in the dark woods that once covered the area. Most people didn't seem to mind the artwork or pay it much attention, but there was something about the people depicted on those tiles, their flat expressions and their eyes that stared off into nothing. The nighttime trees behind them, which did look like they were made by another artist, didn't bother me as much. I've heard and read about others' experiences that mention the subtle brushwork in the background depicting mythical and real forest creatures just waiting to be found by astute observers. 
but I never got close enough to search for myself. I did have plenty of time to bask in the figure's gazes while in line for the train, though, and those eyes were unnerving me by the time I got to the boarding area. To make matters worse, which was the theme for the day, our parents forced my brothers to stand in line with me, even though they weren't riding. It made them even more agitated. When they get like that, I become an outlet. They weren't always mean back then, and we have a good relationship as adults, but when they were having a bad time, they were experts at making me have a bad time too. Teasing, pranking, mocking my age and height, a general ragging. Anyone with older siblings can relate, I'm sure. Typical stuff, and I wouldn't bother mentioning it if their behavior wasn't important later on. At least I did get to ride the train, if only for a minute or so. Afterwards, we rejoined the rest of the family after they had moved their purchases to their cars outside while I was in line. We then rushed into the small movie theater, grabbed some snacks, and because we showed up just as the film was starting, and it was crowded, we had to settle for seats in the back row. My brothers blamed me for that too, and they conspired with my sister and cousins to get them peeved as well. I would never tattle or whine to mom and dad about petty things like that, nor did I fight back much, instead suffering in silence. I didn't let myself cry either, but it still hurts to get gaslighted into thinking that you're to blame for everything. I wasn't the one in charge of organizing an overstuffed and exhausting shopping extravaganza. The movie provided a distraction from all that, though. I could relate to poor Kevin, being picked on and forgotten, but the idea of getting a chance to take things out on a pair of burglars via elaborate traps was nothing more than cathartic fantasy. The rest of my family probably didn't see the similarities. To them, it was just a comedic holiday film. It was just annoying that I had to get a whiff of those stinky perfumes every time I took a bite of popcorn. Afterwards, we had dinner in the food court as a long day came to an end. All us kids and teenagers were more than ready to go home, but then Mom suddenly needed just one more thing. With only a few minutes until the mall closed at seven, we had to make a final stop because she remembered that we needed a new vacuum cleaner to replace our broken one. I lived with my immediate family in a rural area that was far from any department stores, so squeezing in such a purchase made sense, even if it made the younger ones more irritable. With all of our many other purchases already sitting out in the freezing parking lot, we made a mad dash to Sleepy Pines' only other anchor store. I'm still not sure just how my parents managed to fit their new vacuum into the van with everything else. They must have taken care of all their holiday shopping in one day. It turned out that the other kids really didn't like this last-minute decision. My sister and cousins don't always make me into their plaything, stress ball, or punch pillow, but when pushed far enough, they'll get in on the action too. After their pleas to get home fell on deaf ears, meaning that TV shows would be missed and nightly calls to high school boyfriends would be delayed, they turned their eyes to me for entertainment right in the middle of a Sears. I'm sure I quickly reached my limits on putting up with their crap and got pretty upset. But the adults were too busy trying to buy an appliance just before the mall closed to pay us any attention. Again, I do have a good relationship with my cousins and siblings in the present, I swear. Even bad children can turn into good adults. It's just important for story purposes to mention the ridicule I experienced. Though, to be honest... It does feel great getting to call them out for it after all these years. 
and to subtly blame them for everything that happened next. You see, I did stupid things as a kid too. Inexplicable things at times. That's what happens when you're young and lack critical thinking skills, and the idea of consequences is still hard to grasp. I was coming from a place of logic when I did it, but that didn't make it even close to the right decision. To try and get away from the bullying, I'd been walking around the nearly empty seer store at a faster and faster pace. But the others kept up, and it only turned it into more of a game for them. Then an opportune moment arrived when my dad and uncle started calling for everyone to come back. Not because mom was ready to make the final purchase and free us, but rather parents just don't like it when their kids are out of sight for too long. But I knew it was only a matter of seconds before my tormentors wandered off again from the vacuum cleaner aisle to renew the pursuit. So instead of going to the adults with them, I turned around, ran to the major appliance corner of the store, and crawled into a washing machine. Yeah, not my best moment. But you couldn't beat it as a hiding place. And back then, they didn't have all the safety features we now take for granted, so it was easy to close the door from the inside. So there I was, hunkered down in a pitch-black tumbler, more scared of my family than my hideout. I thought about getting out within the first minute, but then I heard someone walking past and figured it might be one of the older kids. I stayed in there and must have lost track of time. To be fair, it was the first bit of true peace and quiet I had known all day. According to the old memory of this incident that I never used to question, the next thing I knew, I had gotten out, wandered about the empty seers for a bit, and was then helped out of the store by some cops and returned to my parents amid the flashing lights of the police cruisers. But I never had a firm grasp on the passage of time around the event. And now I remember why. Much more actually happened. First, I should note a peculiar observation which never left me about the end of that day. During the last 15 minutes or so before the 7 o'clock closing time, I had noticed the behavior out in the rest of the mall from the Sears entrance. Employees were closing up their shops in a hurry and rushing customers out, not even all that politely. In turn, the owners and workers I could see looked like they were being directed by the general mall staff to hurry things along, the custodian and head of security guys being among them. This also happened much closer to me, moments later in the department store, just before my siblings and cousins started being mean. There was a conversation between my parents and or aunt and uncle with the employee helping them pick a vacuum cleaner that's always stuck out for me, and it went something like this. I'm very sorry, but we're going to have to make this quick. A parent asked, What's the rush? We know you close at seven, but... Yes, but this evening we need to be out of the store within just a few minutes after closing. Has it always been like that? My uncle or aunt replied. We've been here before, and we've never seen them all like this, with shoppers being hurried out. If customers need a few extra minutes to finish up... Further discussion must have seemed like a waste of time to the worried sale associate, and he said something like, It's like this once a year. We can get in a lot of trouble if we linger around tonight. I remember him looking away as he revealed this, or seeing guilt on his face. Like this wasn't something he was supposed to say to customers. It was odd, 
but seeing as how this was also the first time I had ever been at a mall at closing, I probably just figured that this was the way things were. But later on, as a teenager in the 90s, I hung out at malls often with friends and it was usually a pretty lax affair as things closed down. You usually just finished whatever you were doing and left as stores rolled down their shutters. Things got quiet, lights turned off, and the place emptied out. But my parents didn't dwell on it for long because it was easy to come up with a reason that explained the rush and shrug off the urgency. I think it was my mom who replied, oh, it must be because of the holiday weekend. Of course. Well then, I'll just have to make my choice quickly. I didn't get to see which vacuum cleaner she chose until I was safely back home. Yes, obviously I did survive that night, but it shouldn't have been a night where that was ever in question. And now that the memories have come back to me, I've only just begun to wonder about the scars it left behind. I think a part of my subconscious has been haunted by what I experienced, even while the rest of me managed to forget for the longest time. Mom sometimes says that I was different before the night I got left in the mall. What my family believed happened would have been enough to traumatize any kid that young. But the whole truth is just so far beyond what they know. I've delayed writing out what transpired long enough and there's nothing left to set up in the story. Revisiting and really processing everything has given me the shakes these past few weeks, so I might have some sort of PTSD thing going on. But I'm going to try. I don't expect you to believe the second part of this story, and that's fine. Maybe if just one person does, and they're the right person, I could finally get some answers. But I doubt they exist. When I snapped out of whatever state of mind I was in and left that washing machine, I stepped into a very dark Sears store. It was almost winter and already dark outside, and the place had no lights on at all, meaning my only source of illumination came from the parking lot lights outside and what little was still running out in the mall. It was very empty and very quiet, too. I didn't want to believe that my family would just leave without me. I must have thought that they'd come looking, or someone knew where I was. Maybe the reason I stayed in the tumbler for so long was simple kid logic. I was expecting someone else to find me and let me know when it was time to go. I just had to stay put and safe from my tormentors until the adults came and saved me. I ran up to the door to the parking lot, hoping it would open, and I'd see the van running outside, with mom or dad ready to open the sliding passenger door for me and asking, what took you so long? But the lot was as vacant as the store. You could mistakenly think that the mall hadn't been visited in years the way a landscape once filled with vehicles appears. The doors were also locked, to no surprise. Not that I was stupid enough to venture out into the cold, only dumb enough to hide in a washing machine. It occurred to me early on that the mall was going to be closed until Friday, so I might have taken that to mean that absolutely no one would enter the building before then. The realization upset me, and chances are I shed a few tears, but I would have also been brave and try to focus and reach out to reason. I knew my aunt and uncle's home phone number. All I needed was to find a phone. I could get quarters from the fountain for a pay phone if I needed to, and I knew that there should be plenty of phones around the store, too. Not that I would have even known what it meant to get an outside line on any of them. But calling out was a moot point, anyway. I did locate some phones as I explored the back offices and found the one at the customer service desk. 
but nothing had a dial tone. Figuring I was doing something wrong or the store shut them off at night, I left the relative safety of Sears to try and make my way to a payphone. Whereas the store felt somewhat safe, despite being a left-behind seven-year-old in the dark, even today the idea of walking around in an empty mall at night freaks me out. I may not fully get the liminal spaces craze, but there is something universally unnerving about exploring some place typically full of people that you're never supposed to see after closing. The Sears wasn't blocked off by a rolling shutter I'd have no hope of getting open, like most of the stores. All that kept me inside were a pair of latches on the top and bottom of glass doors. I found a stepladder so I could reach the upper lock and got out in minutes. Scared and shaking, yes, but rather proud of my handling of the situation so far and ready to find a payphone. Being an hour from the house meant rescue would take time, but just hearing a parent's voice would have been enough for my spirits at the moment. The mall itself was better lit than the Sears, though not by much. It was a dark and cloudy evening, so the skylights were pitch black. But what was coming from the vending machines and any storefront signage that had backlighting provided me enough to navigate by. While the darkness was bad enough, it was the silence that really got to me. Most people probably feel that the sprawling indoor shopping plaza, playing its crappy Muzak at night, would only add to the creepiness. But I might have found it rather comforting in comparison. My sneakers squeaking against the tile, I kept otherwise quiet and on the watch all around me. My eyes peeled on the shadows as if expecting a monster to jump out at any moment. It didn't take long to find a couple of payphones, but they didn't have dial tones either. That must have dampened my outlook. I think I shrunk down against the wall and had another good cry. At some point, I noticed a warm flickering light down the hall, towards the atrium. Was the mall on fire? It would have been a frightening discovery at first, like something out of a strange nightmare, but I didn't see any smoke or hear any alarms going off. And there could have been someone down there, some member of the staff who was either fighting the flames or had ignited them. I wiped away my tears and approached cautiously, and I, as A turned the corner, I saw the first of that night's bizarre scenes. Dozens of candles lined the inactive fountain, and there was a thin sheen of some kind of dark liquid on the water that had an acrid odor. The image of the mural now stands out vividly in my mind. The dancing candlelight on the faces of those colonists and the natives ceding the land to them. There was something old world about it, like a part of the past was lingering in this place. That was when the chanting reached my ears. It was distant, but I could tell it was coming from real people. There was only one more way to go, towards the Dillards at the other end of the V-shaped mall. I looked around the next corner, and under a larger skylight were a number of figures, sitting on the floor and surrounded by four load-bearing pillars and countless candles. The people were in silhouette and difficult to see, but there were people. Call me judgmental, but I wasn't naive enough to believe that a group chanting in candlelight near a polluted fountain in a mall at night would offer to help a child who may have already seen too much. Even so, I kept still and stuck to the shadows, watching from a distance for a short while. My young mind must have had no idea what to make of the sight. 
Was this something adults typically got together and did after work? Were they practicing for some kind of holiday performance? It sounds ridiculous to even consider those things now, of course. But when you're a kid whose worldly experiences are limited, every new discovery can mystify, no matter how mundane. I should mention how well I can remember this part. I've always been able to, but I just couldn't recognize it as something that really happened. I'll explain why later, but I figured it I should preface the clarity I have of this moment. Over the course of several minutes, I had snuck closer to the group, only stopping and hiding behind a fake plant once I could make out their strange chanting. It was in harmony among the seven people and oddly rhythmic, if not muffled by their masks. Their mantra was paced like breathing, in and out and muttered in a low drone, and it only consisted of two words that I had never heard before. Words that I knew didn't belong to the English language. I can best translate their pronunciations as Yojade, followed by Hadauni E. The candlelight was too dim to make out their clothing at first, but their animal masks were easier to discern. There was a rat, a raccoon, some bird of prey like an eagle or hawk, a fox, a deer, and a snake. The person leading the incantation wore a pig mask, and if everyone was positioned on a clock, he would have been at midnight, with the others at three, four, and five on one side, and seven, eight, and nine on the other. There was no holding of hands, no movement or swaying. It was like they were in a meditative trance, saying those two words without thought or end. And there was also a source of light in the middle of the group that I couldn't make out yet, as three of the people blocked my view. It cast a scarlet glow, and it stretched their shadows across the mall tile. I realized as I watched this strange spectacle that I actually might have had some frame of reference for what I was seeing. Surrounding 1990 was the height of America's satanic panic, which was in essence baseless concern among religious communities that Satanism and other forms of pagan worship were prevalent in all walks of life across the country. In other words, a few people were convinced that their neighbors could be trying to summon demons in suburbia. My parents weren't religious, and I never went to church growing up, so I can objectively say that it was nothing more than a form of mass hysteria. Back then, I wouldn't have been so sure what it all meant, the panic only being something I'd heard about from my classmates at school and occasional reports on the nightly news. But I did at least have some idea of what such a ritual might look like, it didn't matter whether or not I believed in any of it. If the people chanting in a circle truly did, then who knows what they may have been capable of doing, no matter how misguided. Too much faith and conviction in any belief can give people the power to do and justify almost anything. I Having convinced myself that they were trying to open a portal to the place where bad guys went, I didn't want to take a chance on any of that stuff being real. So I started backing off deciding to avoid the area entirely. I mean, think about seeing something this messed up as a world-weary adult. Then imagine seeing it as a child. It's surreal, inexplicable, nightmarish, the type of thing that would probably never leave your mind. I'm surprised I stayed and observed as long as I did. But looking back, it may have been because something was pulling me in, tugging at me from a distance, trying to whisper in my ear. Only was too far away, so its touch was too subtle to quite reach me. 
I was about to leave, until I heard a familiar sound, the ring of a phone. I hadn't seen it until the pigman got up and went over to it, but there was a phone on the floor next to the ritual site. My eyes had adjusted to the dark enough to see and follow the long cable connected to it, which ran from some place further down the hall that I couldn't see from my position. As the pigman went to answer it, I got a look at his clothes. He was wearing a business suit of all things, and it was stained in a deep red. Yes, he said into the receiver, in a plain voice as if he were talking to a regular person on a normal day. Yes, we're ready. Understood. We will begin right away. And a good weekend to you as well. Goodbye. He hung up, and his other animal mask friends waited patiently as he walked off down the hall. I couldn't take my eyes off the phone, perhaps the only one in the mall that was working. There was no way I'd ever be able to make myself sneak over to it, but I knew that if I could follow the cord, I might find other usable phones near where it was plugged in. The pigman returned after a few seconds, pulling over a trolley cart, like the kind used by ice cream vendors around the mall during the day. And this is where things got unexpectedly disgusting and perverse. He opened the sliding metal lid of the cart and pulled out an animal carcass. I think it was, I suppose appropriately, a pig, although its head was missing. And no, he thankfully wasn't wearing it. It was easy enough to tell that what he had adorned was a simple rubber mask, not that it made any of what I was seeing less bizarre. The carcass had already been slashed multiple times, with deep wounds going across the body that were still leaking blood. As if this was just another typical Wednesday for them, he nonchalantly stabbed the pig with a large knife to create another exit for more blood to flow from and dangled the carcass over the ritual site. He also shook it around, making the crimson liquid splash across the tile. The other people just kept sitting there throughout, not even reacting. I'm sure they were hit by blood droplets, but didn't care at all. When the pig was thoroughly drained, he chucked it off to the side, then returned to the cart and pulled off an object that had been perched atop the retracted umbrella pole. When he brought it into the light, I could see that it was a cow skull with horns intact. It was bleached, dusty, and cracked. It had been around a while. The pigman returned to his spot and held it over his head. Fresh blood and old bone, binding our cycle of life with those that have come before. We ask that you hear us once more. This sacred, ancient land, we respect your bounty. We know our desires to be worldly and petty, small and meaningless in the eyes of the timeless earth around us. We humbly beg your forgiveness for our sins, for forsaking and abusing nature, and for the death and destruction brought by our forefathers. May the old spirits of those who truly tended to and respected this land only know paradise. They did not deserve our wrath against them, and surely their use of your great power was modest and just. But now we live in a modern world. We know it to be a shallow, frivolous place, and yet livelihoods are, as always, at stake. Failure of our crops, famine and pestilence may no longer be of grave concern, but we still fear failure and destitution, the loss of opportunity. If we do not succeed, then someone even worse than us will and it will be as if we were never here. 
The pigman lowered his arms and cradled the cow skull. It could be that his arms were just tired, as he wasn't yet done with his diatribe and requests to what must have been some unseen personal god. Capitalism has swept across this land and carries with it many sins, but our greed is not in excess. For all of its faults, the industrialized world brings benefits to our health and standards of living. But it requires constant economic growth, so we ask that you bless us with one more year of your generous gifts. We are caretakers of a structure that has brought an income to many and joy to far more. We are proud to remain independent and not under the thumb of corporate tyranny. Yet, and God knows we've tried, our slow decline continues. Were it not for your charity, our time here would have already come to an end. We heartily ask that you renew and revitalize our beloved enterprise again. Allow it to persist, and may our days remain full of purpose for as long as you see fit. We cannot be abandoned or forgotten or bow to those who would dispose of us for profit. Look into our history. See how we are cherished by the masses. And now, my friends, let us pray. With that, he set the cow skull in the middle of the circle, and the chanting resumed, louder and more forceful this time. Yoje ade hadaunii. Yoje ade hadaunii. They continued like this and remained still, like they were meditating. I thought that their eyes must have been closed, and their mantra was boisterous enough to hide any sounds I might make. It was the right time to get moving, to follow that phone's cord and maybe earn a chance to make a call. I know you're probably wondering just how I remember all of this so well. I have actually more than memorized the pig man's words. They've been a part of me for decades, lingering and repeating in my dreams and thoughts. While I had until recently forgotten the context of that ritual, what came before and after, the scene has persisted in my mind since I first witnessed it. It's an unnatural memory, one that could have eventually driven me crazy if I didn't get my answers. Why did I have so many nightmares about it? Why would I think about the pig man's speech while trying to focus on schoolwork, or during sleepovers with friends, or while busy with every other aspect of growing up? The ritual didn't feel like something that had really happened, so I could never explain to myself just where it was coming from or what any of it meant. I've written those words on composition book journals and in text files on computers many times over the years, just to test my memory. I've gotten them exactly the same on each attempt. It's like they're burned into my head, no less likely to decay than an ancient language inscribed on stone tablets. That's the whole thing behind all of this. It's our memories. It wants to survive through them, to persist and be rebuilt. The rituals, the personal beliefs, how you view the process, even what you make it out of. It doesn't care as long as it exists in some form and you can give it power. It will bend reality for you and fulfill the closest things this world has to a wish, but the cost, well, I'm not sure yet what it is. I don't know if it has a name or if it's even aware of what it is, nor how old the thing is or who created the first one. I'm talking about the totem an object bound to this land, whether it can be called cursed or hallowed. I didn't see it the first time I walked past it. Not that I can remember. Maybe I did. But in my memories, 
it's nothing more than a burning bright light, like a hole in celluloid that the projector shines through. As I snuck around the seven worshippers, if that's what they could be called, I got my first real look at their ritual site. Other than the cow skull and the fresh pig blood spatters, I could see that there had been a circle on the ground also made of blood, smeared messily across the tile. Dotting that circle were seven smaller halos for the participants to sit within. In the center of it all was the totem, though, as stated, I only remember it at this moment as a bright flare, a burning ball of fire too luminous for the mind to imagine or process. It was there. My eyes must have seen its true form, but I simply cannot picture that form in this instance. I hurried around the corner and began to make some distance from the animal mask people, feeling safer with every step. I followed the cord connected to the red phone on the floor into a side hallway and then to the mall security room, which was empty. It was a small place, little more than a couple of desks and an array of black and white TV screens. They must have been connected to cameras across the building, but all of the monitors were off. I don't think the CCTV system was active during the ritual, ensuring there was no record of it. The very long phone cord was plugged into a jack by one of the desks, and the other desk had a phone resting atop it, just waiting to be used. I knew it had to be working, so I reached out to check for a dial tone. But then it rang. I froze up. I wasn't expecting it to ring, and I was too scared to answer it. What if it was the same person that the pigman had talked to? Or maybe it was someone who could help me. But in my panicked state, I just wasn't sure what to do. I hesitated and stood in place too long. And by the third ring, I could hear approaching heavy footsteps from someone who must have been wearing boots. I hid under the desk, making myself as small as I could. The light in the room was positioned in a way so that it cast the man's shadow on the nearby wall. Between the phone's rings, I could hear his muffled breathing from under his mask. He sounded agitated, perhaps offended by the interruption. My heart beating out of my chest, I remained under there, quiet and frozen, as he stood just behind me on the other side of the desk. I believe he was waiting for the phone to stop ringing. But after about a dozen or so rings, I could see his shadow bring up his mask and then grab the receiver. Sleepy Pine Security. He answered, in that kind of tone of voice I remember my parents using whenever we did something bad, yet they were trying really hard not to yell at us just yet. I'm paraphrasing, but he went on to say something like, Lost child? No, no one's here. Yes, I'm looking at the cameras right now. You don't need to get the police involved. Your kid isn't here. Goodbye. Don't call back. He then slammed the phone down and I could hear him mutter out a frustrated, Damn it! Despite my terror, I could still comprehend that it was one of my parents that just called. They knew I was missing, and it was just a matter of time until either they or the police would show up. I suppose it was also a good thing I didn't pick up the phone, or I would likely have been caught. The pigman slid his mask back down and turned to leave, and I planned to return the call as soon as he was gone. The instant that I began to move, however, the phone rang again. I retreated back under the desk only seconds before the pigman came stomping back in. 
He ripped the phone right off its cord and threw it at the wall with such force that I could hear its plastic casing shatter on impact. His rage only made me even more scared of getting caught. The slightest inconvenience getting in the way of his ritual was like heresy. Worse, he knew there was a child somewhere in the building, a helpless interloper. He and the others would now keep an eye out for me. Recognizing this, I must have stayed under that desk for a decent length of time before mustering the courage to get up and leave the room. With the only phone I could easily get to destroyed, but also armed with the knowledge that help was on its way, I saw my best option as just trying to get out of the building. Sleepy Pines was at a central location and served many towns, and yet it was still away from the interstate and the gas stations near it. The place was in the middle of nowhere, and there were no other businesses I could run to. Even so, by then, I was ready to take my chances waiting or hiding outside. The emergency exit doors out in the hall were also a no-go, however. Looking back, I think that the mall could be completely locked down by design. Maybe it was important for the ritual that nothing could get in or out. Or it could be that they were keeping something else inside. I haven't mentioned this yet, but ever since getting out of the washing machine that night, I had felt like I was being watched. As if eyes were on me the moment I had stepped into the darkness of the Sears store. I wonder, if I had just stayed in the tumbler, would I have been safe? I'm not saying that the mall itself was alive, but I believe there was some kind of presence in there that night, all around, pervasive, lingering in the shadows and in every corner where light didn't reach. The feeling was never stronger than when I slipped into the utility corridor, its entrance being right by the useless emergency exit. It was a cold, dirty place, left unheated. Nothing but gray concrete, wiring, air ducts, old equipment, and remnants of stores that had closed over the years. The long stretch of hallway was like the building's unseen museum. Sales signs, going out of business banners, cardboard stands, broken shelving units. I'm not sure what the places that no shopper typically sees are like in your typical mall, but here, it was as if the management never threw away anything. It was a mess, but at least the flickering fluorescent lights that lined the ceiling kept it from being dark. I'm guessing they were rarely turned off. I never actually got a chance to look for some seldom-used doorway back there, though. I didn't even take a step past the entrance. The presence I had felt was almost overwhelming from my spot at the end of a hallway any kid would be scared to navigate in normal times, and for one reason in particular. The corridor was breathing. The night still gets worse, but I'm confident that just being in that hall was one of the main reasons my mind locked me out of the surreal memories in the first place. Like the chanting under the skylight, the breathing was rhythmic and natural, in and out, as if I were staring into a huge monster's throat. It was frigid too, but impossible to mistake for a draft. Wind pulled trash and other loose objects away from me, and then blew them back several seconds later. And yet there was no sound other than the skittering of small debris affected by the current. No rumblings or snoring. Only dead silent, breathing air. I don't remember how long I stood there debating whether it was safer to turn back or actually proceed into the hallway. Maybe only seconds, but I'm sure it felt longer. 
my decision was made for me when I suddenly saw a rapidly approaching darkness from the other end. Its movement was swift and never stopped. It wasn't like the fluorescent lights were taking turns shutting off. There was an abyssal blackness coming right at me, at the speed of a train, and it engulfed everything it swept over. I think it may have even generated a shockwave of air, hitting with enough force to push me forward just after I had turned around to flee from whatever entity was threatening to swallow me. I threw my body against the door I had stepped through only moments ago before the darkness could reach me, fell to the floor, stumbled about, and took off in the opposite direction as fast as I could go. Keeping it all in was impossible, and I can recall screaming as I ran away with no destination in mind. It didn't matter that my panic had given myself away, because the pig man was already on the lookout for a child. He grabbed the back of my jacket the instant I passed by a corner where he had been waiting. He was tall and strong. I think he must have picked me up with one arm by just the collar of my outerwear. He brought me up to his mask and I could see nothing but black through the rubbery pig face's eyes. Well, he muttered in a guttural growl. What brings you to Sleepy Pines tonight, young lady? Able to hold and carry me with a single arm over his shoulder, like he did the pig carcass, he took me towards the ritual site. My survival instincts kicked in, and remembering what my parents taught me to do if I should ever be grabbed by a stranger, I started thrashing and yelling in his grip. Not that it did me any good against such a brute. I need to take a break here. I don't feel prepared to move on to what happened after that just yet. It'll take another round of stealing my nerves to revisit the next part. I do want to keep writing while these memories are fresh, so I think I'll spend the next couple of nights doing a little research and getting down some objective facts. Pardon the brief interlude. During its existence from 1973 to 2008, Sleepy Pines only ever had two owners, the first of which also helped design the building. The second owner was brought in to oversee a revival attempt starting in 1991, but didn't quite succeed and ended up closing shop less than two decades later. As far as I can tell, he was a typical businessman of little importance, and his only noteworthy accomplishment was getting a good deal on the sale of the land. So, let's instead talk about Pierce Colchester, the first proprietor. I did what I could on digging up information about him before writing this story, but it's no easy task. Whether the world simply ignored him as much as an owner of a mall could be ignored, or he tried his hardest to bury his tracks, his legacy has been made enigmatic. But there are a few things we do know. He was born in 1942, appeared to be quite tall when compared to others in what few photographs of him exist, and was once a college professor in the Northeast of all things, teaching a class on anthropological studies as they pertain to the native populations that once thrived in the area. But that only lasted a short while, as sometime around 1970, he inexplicably came into a lot of money, quit his job, and bought a large tract of wooded land not far from freshly laid Interstate Road. His business dealings were seen as shady, and his construction contracts are seemingly lost, but all of that was brushed aside by the local government when Sleepy Pines opened in 1973 and brought a cash flow into an area that was little more than farmland and abandoned steelworks. I'm certain I met him that night because he suddenly disappeared in 1990 and a new owner had to be found who wasn't as successful with running the place. 
The mall's reputation for being clean and safe was hit hard, then it fell into disrepair. Vendors evaporated, and its glory days became a memory. In other words, I was there the moment its slow death spiral started. There was something else notable about Sleepy Pines that I gathered from a series of small articles over the years written about the place. Stories and observations that never gained wider traction yet persisted while Mr. Colchester was in charge. Excluding the workers who ran both the corporate stores and smaller, independent outlets, the mall had been knowingly understaffed during his tenure. It did function as any other decent mall, only with far fewer people at the helm than usual, to the point where it was noticeable to anyone looking. It managed to thrive in the early days even so, and that small overhead must have bolstered the monetary success of Sleepy Pines and put more money right in Colchester's pockets. He only ever commented directly on the matter once, and never in a written interview. After contacting a few people I grew up with and who still live in the area, one of them managed to uncover an old videotape with recordings of local news broadcasts for the closest city to the mall. It so happens that Colchester was interviewed in 1988 right in the atrium itself and in front of the mural. He had made one of his rare public appearances for what was little more than a fluff piece celebrating the mall's 15th anniversary, and the segment was less than two minutes long. Hearing him speak was what really confirmed to me his identity. He is standoffish, and his answers are to the point, if not a little defensive. I won't transcribe the whole thing, but his responses are worth a mention. He is asked three questions. To the first, he explains his mall's success on keeping a small but dedicated and professional staff on hand at all times. To them, the place is more than just their livelihood. It's their sanctuary. His words, not mine. Even the reporter seemed a little taken aback by this degree of reverence. Perhaps thinking that he went too far, he visibly tries to lighten up a little and emphasizes that he just wants to turn the mall and the work around it into an art form, something to take pride in, like the Italians and the Japanese do. Keep in mind, this is a middling shopping center in a low to middle class rural area. He definitely thinks too highly of himself, and it's clear he isn't much for socializing. Replying to a follow-up question on why he hired so few people, he claims things like efficiency and forming a tight-knit family. I think he just wanted to save money and have the right number of workers that he felt he could control, either keeping them devoted to his cause or leaving their numbers small so they wouldn't consider rebelling against him. After some banter back and forth and compliments from the reporter about the pristine nature of the place, she asks her last question about the mural. The camera pans over to it, basking in the daylight from the windows above, and because of the low-res video, it's like the figures are watching several children passing by who have ice cream cones in their hands. Every mall needs a centerpiece, something that defines and speaks for it, Colchester says. I've visited many across the country and seen things from elephant sculptures to meaningless displays whipped up by a commercial artist. I had this mural commissioned to pay homage to the people that were here first. It allows us to look back at them, and them us from the distant past. And for anyone that studies the brushstrokes closely enough, they will find little secrets, depictions of folk stories and forest creatures. I cannot give away the name of its two creators. One did the backdrop, the other the deceptively simplistic figures. 
but suffice to say, they are both modern masters. All this art talk goes over the reporter's head, and she concludes the interview with a toothy grin and wishes Colchester luck in the next holiday shopping season. Himself an artist in backhanded wit, he smiles wryly and suggests that she might wish to check out the sale at the pottery barn. She cheerfully closes out, and we return to the local newsroom to learn of other trivial matters. I do miss the simplicity of that time. It's hard to believe that just a couple years later, that man was covered in blood, wearing a pig mask, and returning to what was pretty much a cult ritual in his mall with me in tow, kicking and screaming. I can really only owe my survival to a rift among his workers. Some of them hadn't lost their humanity quite yet, and seeing their boss dragging over a small girl to a sacrificial circle was a step too far for them on first sight. Since I was again near their holy object, I can revisit my recurring nightmare realm where my memories are crystal clear. I was finally close enough to the site to see the others, and I took in their appearances despite being terrified. While they never took off their animal masks, the rest of their clothing was also business attire, and I recognized two of the uniforms, that of the custodian and the head of security, both of whom I had seen earlier in the day. There were two other men in suits, and two women as well that I know I'll never identify. For some reason, when I was brought close enough to the object in the middle of the circle, I could see it. Or more accurately, I can remember seeing it since from then on, it doesn't seem to burn a hole in my memory. The totem radiated a strange energy, its structure glowing and containing something exotic and prodigious. There was a red orb floating inside it, giving off waves of heat like a road on a hot summer's day. I don't think its color actually had anything to do with blood. Rather, that was just how these delusional people perceived it. Nor do I think they dug it up. It was too clean and intact to be some ancient lost relic found in the area. I believe they built it. I was able to watch the Mike and Jenna videos after getting in touch with the person who discovered their camera files and is keeping them otherwise private, making me one of the few who has watched those mall exploration clips. This was definitely not the same totem that briefly appears in their video. Its composition, size, and materials are totally different whereas the object they stumbled upon was tall and looked like a wood carving. This 1990 iteration of the supernatural device was made of bone bound by leather to wood and in a shape similar to an antique hourglass with the bone twisting around to form a cage of sorts that kept the crimson sphere inside. Thankfully, I doubt it was made of human bones. They looked like they had come from a large animal I don't think that the people were macabre enough for that kind of defilement, not yet. Some of their arguments made their opposition to what was happening clear and gave me hope, but that night was already one of the most demented things a child could ever experience. Other than Mr. Colchester the Pigman, I can't be sure of who spoke because of the masks, but their quarrel went something like this. Why is there a kid in the mall? Where did you find her? We have to stop everything at once. She isn't part of the process. But she's already seen too much. No, we can medicate her, knock her out. She'll think this was all a bad dream. Her parents must already be on the way. Don't waste time debating. But you know it doesn't let anyone forget. This is true, Colchester tells his flock 
as I continue to stare in awe and fear at their sacred object. And her family is looking for her. But isn't it obvious what we must do? This is a sign. The divine miracle is testing us, our devotion, by bringing us this lost lamb. You know what has to be done. Sir, one of the women replies shakily, when you use language like that, it concerns me. The icon is remarkable, yes, but we need to remain rational and clear-headed. We agreed years ago that it would be dangerous to place such blind faith in this thing that we still don't understand. This remark angers Colchester, and he roars almost incoherently. That is exactly why its power has waned. You never truly believed in the icon. None of you did. Not like I do. How can you take this child's appearance in any other way than a pronouncement? No. A holy commandment? We are never going to sacrifice a child, the other woman says, and she and the custodian get to their feet. This is too much. When does it end? What's next? The custodian asks his boss. Do we put two kids under the knife next year, then double it every year after? If we must, Colchester rages on. Think of all the happy families, making memories, buying presents for their loved ones. We need that to persist. This is a small price to pay for success. Open your eyes. But he's only losing followers, and everyone but one of the men in a fancy suit stand up to oppose him. I don't think its power has weakened, sir, the head of security replies harshly. I think that even it can't keep the tide back any longer. He's right, my friend, a man agrees. We can't fight where the market is going. The golden days are over for many businesses, not just us. Let's calm down and talk civilly. There are other uses we can find for the object, and Sleepy Pines may still be able to sustain itself for years to come, even without its help. The past isn't worth holding on to, not at this price. None of you ever had enough faith in our blessed icon. If you had truly devoted yourselves to it, we would not even be here tonight. It was then the last person still sitting on the floor, one of the men wearing a business suit and hidden by the rat mask, stood up. He took out the knife from the pig corpse nearby and wiped off the blood on his sleeve. My faith is still strong, he grumbled in a harsh tone. Good, then show me, Colchester demanded and turned with me still in his grasp so that I could face the large butcher's tool. The man in the rat mask approached callously, like it meant nothing at all to drive that blade into a child's heart if it meant another year in the black. But the others still wouldn't let it stand, and they drew near. They recoiled when the rat man slashed the knife toward them and said sternly, Get back. I have too much riding on this place. If you can't do it, I will. Ever since my mind opened up and confirmed to me that the memories at the ritual site were real, I found myself wondering the most about the Rat Man, more so than Pierce Colchester. Who he was, what he had on the line, and why he was the most devoted of the followers. He must have disappeared too. I think they all did, but the others were just less newsworthy. Whatever his story, the group didn't hesitate a second time, and as soon as he had let his guard down, they rushed both him and Colchester and wrestled me from their grip. From the floor, I heard them scuffling, maybe even fighting in earnest. It had to have been just the tail end of a long, tumultuous relationship among them all, 
and I was merely a passerby in the night. Whatever their boiled-over disagreements with one another, they were more important to the ritualists than me. I was only the trigger, and also suddenly forgotten for the moment. I could have just gotten to my feet and snuck away, but I was worried that I still might not make it out. That overwhelming presence in the building remained, and if it didn't catch me, then Colchester or the Ratman would. The two of them were strong and fierce, and in my brief glimpse of their struggle, I saw that they were already close to overpowering the lesser five. My solution to everything was remarkably simple. If this had happened when I was adult, I might have overthought it or doubted my ability to do it. But easy, impulsive solutions are what being a kid is all about. So I did the only thing that made sense to me throughout that night. I got up, went over to the totem, and crushed it with my foot. I furiously stomped on it repeatedly, breaking the bones that comprised it with satisfying snaps. Upon hearing those sounds, and then seeing what I was doing, Colchester expressed his extreme disapproval by flying into another rage. He broke free from the others and came charging at me, but his anger was short-lived and quickly turned into some sort of physical or mental anguish. Once the totem was completely shattered, the floating red orb in its center turned black, melted into a liquid that oozed onto the tile and then seemingly soaked into the tile. The substance had disappeared within seconds, and I think this caused a reaction in Colchester. He spasmed and started choking on liquid. Black fluid dripped from the pig mask eyes, and then he vomited up a torrent of that disgusting black gunk from the fountain. The others backed away from him, and I'm guessing they didn't know what was happening either. But he was obviously in pain and suffering as his body tried to purge something. Unnatural. This was always where my repeating nightmares ended. With the totem destroyed, it no longer had a hold on my memories, and the rest of the night becomes a blur again. Although I now remember the rest just as well as any other fuzzy childhood account. Colchester ran off, clutching his chest or stomach, and there's a chance that everyone else just stood around a moment longer, looking at each other and me as if wondering, What now? It didn't last long. Since the mall was dark, the flashing red and blue lights that had suddenly appeared from the other side of the nearest locked doors filled the halls and scared them off. After they also disappeared from my life, I ran to the door, feeling overwhelmed by panic and desperation to get out of that building. I'm not sure, but when I destroyed the totem, all of Sleepy Pines may have trembled. If it wasn't for me severing some otherworldly grip on the place, then perhaps it was that unseen but omnipresent entity I had felt since the start of that night. Either way, I had returned to the world of reason and everyday normal adults doing their jobs. The police officers that had come to my rescue weren't able to get in touch with any mall staff for reasons obvious only to me. So after I ran up to the doors, they ended up breaking glass to get me out of there. My parents were waiting nearby in the van. We had a tearful reunion, and I got the back of the vehicle to myself on the way home. I only have bits and pieces of these last moments of the night, so it's likely I passed out as the adrenaline dissipated and they brought me straight to bed. I never told my family everything. They knew that I had been trapped in a mall, alone at night for hours, and that was more than enough to warrant some child therapy. After a few months or so, I must have shown good improvement because they no longer saw a reason to keep at it, so long as I didn't visit the mall again. 
I don't remember much from my sessions, but I don't think I ever told my therapist the full truth either. Who would believe it? What would it add? If anything, I'd just be seen as delusional or confusing the resulting nightmares with reality. People in animal masks, worshipping bones and pig blood. While therapy taught me how to manage my emotions and not let past events control me, I mostly credit my recovery to my mind quickly burying the reality of what transpired. I can't explain how it did so exactly, but it could have something to do with the unbelievable things I saw, and part of me just couldn't accept them as real. Or maybe the totem can remove or rewrite memories to disguise its nature and make finding out what it is difficult. In my recurring flashbacks and dreams over the decades that take place at the ritual site, the totem itself never actually appeared until recently. I'd forgotten its form. My theory is that the enigmatic object is both a lock and key. It can hide itself away from perception. But when I read Mike and Jenna's story and saw the videos, the totem unlocked itself within my psyche and freed other memories about the day as well. How it can do this is one more mystery as to its origin. I think any physical form it takes is tenuous, only as strong as the person that creates it. But it knows how to linger and wait to be made again. I can't even begin to assume anything about its powers or true purpose. I haven't seen any of the people at the ritual since then. I never returned to that mall. We did visit my uncle's family a couple more times, but I stayed at the house when the others paid a visit to Sleepy Pines. It had to have been understandable for my parents that I shouldn't need to relive something so traumatic. A few years later, once both of my cousins were adults with their own lives, my aunt and uncle moved from their small town, and we had no reason to go back. Before I wrote this, I finally asked my mom about her perspective of the night, emphasizing that I remembered everything she thinks happened to me again. It reawakened old guilt, but I assured her that I had moved on and forgiven everyone for leaving me behind. Her answers gave me a clear understanding of how things went wrong, and I can't really blame my parents anymore, at least not fully. It was an accident, something that could happen to any large group at the end of a busy and chaotic day. It wasn't as basic as driving a van full of kids home and not noticing that I was missing. There was actually some miscommunication between my parents and my aunt and uncle about who was riding with who. Presence filled up both vehicles and meant that passengers had to be split up. In the confusion, each driver must have thought that I was in the other car. Specifics about which siblings and cousins were in which vehicle are lost to time, not that it really matters. However things panned out, no one noticed I was missing until a few hours later, when it was time for bed. My parents rushed back to the mall after calling the police, and their response time was such that both parties arrived at just about the same moment despite the difference in distance. Life moved on for us after that, and the incident became just another one of those childhood disasters that big families get used to. All of my siblings have horror stories of their own as well, though none as strange as mine. Not that I've divulged to any of them the full truth. I don't believe that the ritual site was ever discovered, or it was cleaned up in a hurry. No local newspapers had a story on any of it that I found after an extensive search. However, I did manage to track down the words that the ritualists were chanting after repeating them in my head enough times and thinking about Colchester's reverence for local tribes. 
They were from the Seneca language used by the Iroquois people in the area. Yoj Ade, meaning the earth, and Ha Dao Ni E, to breathe. Yoadzade and Hado Nai. I'm not certain of the pronunciation, and they probably weren't either. They probably didn't have to be. It's the belief that counts that fed the totem. But if there truly is something special about the land up there, the breathing earth, I wouldn't be surprised. It would track with what I felt and witnessed one night in November. The one last thing I don't understand, to top off so many other things, is that I had to have been in that washing machine for at least several hours, since my mom swears that I didn't get to bed until midnight. There's no way that I would have willingly stayed in there that long, so I must be missing time. I either fell asleep without knowing, totally spaced out for a while, or something else happened the moment the mall closed up that defies explanation. If the totem can screw around with space, it's not a stretch to say that it could also play with time. The danger is great, but I have a feeling that it will eventually be remade again by someone with a different point of view than a few guilt-ridden capitalists in charge of a dying mall. And maybe then we'll get some answers because I have none, only guesses and an outsider's story. Until then, I've recently found that sketching my own version of the totem on occasion is strangely soothing. It makes me feel calm. I kind of like it and think it'd look best if created with something artistic, like clay. But I'm also well aware of what it might do if fully realized. So don't worry about me. I'm fine. Everything in moderation. By the way, Home Alone doesn't have a mall scene. A Cold Relics original. A Noel in Black by Humboldt Lycanthrope. The doors to the homeless shelter shut in 10 minutes, but Caleb needed another drink. It was Christmas Eve, 1970, and he was wandering the streets of Eureka, California in a tattered and filthy Santa suit, crimson hat perched atop his head, dirty beard pulled down around his neck, a streak of vomit running down his left leg. When the Salvation Army gave him the costume days ago, how many now? Three? Four? It had been brand new and shiny clean, but he had gone AWOL as soon as he had begged up enough money for a good drunk. He couldn't believe how easy it was to get money begging in a Santa suit during the holidays, especially when people thought they were giving to the Salvation Army. Too bad, he thought, that the racket had to end tonight. Fuck it! He was headed to the nearest bar and had a pocket full of money bells on bobtail ring, making spirits bright. What fun it is to sing a slaying song tonight. Finally, managing to make eye contact with the simian-faced bartender who was absent-mindedly pushing a dish towel up and down a pint glass, Caleb waved a fiver in the air, a wry smile of what the fuck on his face. Red and green Christmas tree lights flickered over the bottles and mirrors, and off in the corner the ghost of Christmas past grinned its horrid smile. The bartender nodded acknowledgement and strutted over. Yeah? What do you want? Beer and a whiskey. What kind of beer? What kind of whiskey? The cheapest. 
The bartender got him his drinks, took the 20, and left his change in front of him on the bar. Sipping the bitter medicine, Caleb noticed a woman a few stools down trying to draw his attention, a jet of blue smoke issuing from her cherry-red lips as she raised and lowered her thickly penciled eyebrows. He could tell she had done her best to look good tonight. Lots of eye makeup, newer, hipper-looking clothes, but he could see the age in her face, recognized her need like a bad smell. Battered, needy women gave off a stink of desperation he'd learned to recognize over the years. Those years since he'd been back from the war, he'd had his fair share of these types, always good for a warm bed and a hot meal, but too crazy to spend any real time with. Hey there, Santa, buy a girl a drink? Sure thing, honey. Caleb glanced at the barkeep. Give the lady what she wants. She slid down next to him as the grim-faced bartender mixed a rum and coke, speared a lime with a tiny sword, and dropped it in the glass. I've always had a thing for Santa, she whispered, coming in late at night to punish the naughty and reward the nice. Yeah, and what are you, darling? Naughty or nice? I've always thought I was a little of both. Ha, huh. what's your name, baby? Sandra. They call me Sandy around here, but I think of myself as Sandra. All right, Sandra, what's your story? Just a local girl, been in the same place too long. What about you, Santa? Don't you got a lot of work to do tonight? Caleb laughed, that deep, reassuring laugh he'd mastered over the years to put people, women especially, at ease. They talked for a while. Then Caleb ordered a pitcher of beer and a couple more shots, and they moved to a corner booth. Sandra talked on and on, chain-smoking Salem's, while he drank his beer and sipped his whiskey, watching as the room began to spin in slow, psychedelic and nauseating circles. You're awful quiet. I've been told that before. How'd you get them scars on your neck? Caleb put his hand to his neck, let it drift down to the dirty, fake beard, and pulled the knotted gray and black mess of hair over to cover his throat. And that wicked ghost of Christmas past with sunken eyes and yellow teeth whispered, Tell her. And so Caleb did. In the war. You were over in Nam, huh? Yeah, two tours. And then what? You come back to have these damn hippies spitting at you? I feel for you, sweetie. My daddy died in France fighting Nazis. Now my brother is in the Navy while this country goes to shit. You got these bastards like that dirty Abby Hoffman saying to steal everything. And this Charlie Manson family killing movie stars. She laughed, shook her head, and sipped her drink. It's enough to make you sick. They grew quiet. So, you going to tell me about those scars, or what? Well, I was a coochie cootie. A tunnel rat. You know what that is? Oh yeah, you were one of those guys that go down in those gook holes? Sure was. Infantry. First reconnaissance squadron. He sighed, not wanting to get into it. But once he started, it was hard to stop. I was working three clicks west of Duck Fo in the Quang Nai province. I was down in a tunnel. Just me, my .45 and a flashlight. Looking out for booby traps and rats and spiders. And this animal. It came out of nowhere. Fucking attacked me just latched onto my shoulder and wouldn't let go. Oh, baby. 
He was attacked by an animal down in one of those tunnels? Yeah, but when I killed it, when I shot it, he couldn't tell her the rest. He couldn't tell her how after he had shot that thing. The muzzle blast, a blinding light, the report deafening after he had filled that monster full of holes and watched it drop. It had looked just like a little girl. Just a tiny, raven-haired girl, all shot up and bloody, when moments ago it had been a beast, a mess of lurching fangs and drool. His mouth moved up and down silently. He couldn't say anything. Then, with an incredible effort, what he had managed to say was, I think I brought something back with me. I... I... I don't know. You brought something back with you? You mean, like that Agent Orange stuff, honey? No, something different. Something, something... What? In your head? He wanted to say, no, something in my blood. I brought back something in my blood that makes me a monster. But instead, he just nodded yes, his face a knot, visibly fighting to not break down in tears. Oh, baby, oh, baby, I understand. The room was twirling now at a breakneck speed. He was going to be sick. He pulled away from her and vomited on the floor. Son of a bitch! The bartender shouted. Who's going to clean that up? Caleb hung over the edge of the booth, retching and dry heaving. Fuck you, Sam. He's a veteran. He fought for this country, got attacked down in one of them gook holes. What the fuck you ever done? I don't care if he was on the beach at Normandy. Get him the fuck out of here. You're a piece of work. A real piece of work. Know that, Sam? Where's your sense of Christmas spirit? The bartender stomped up to her, eyes bulging, an accusing finger extended. Get your cheap whore ass out of here, bitch, and take your Santa Claus friend with you. Got me? He grabbed her face in his hand and jerked her chin up so that he could look her in the eye. This bar ain't no place for you anymore, Sandy. You make my customers sick. Everyone who's wanted to has fucked you, and none of them's too proud of it either. You don't belong here. Find some other place to haunt, you cheap skank. With that, he tossed her head aside and stormed back behind the bar. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Sandra walked Caleb back to the motel room she rented by the month, holding him up the whole way while he leaned against her, mumbling and pointing to ghosts she could not see. Once they were back at her room, she helped him out of his Santa outfit and got him into the tub. In the heat of the steamy water, he regained a semblance of consciousness, came back to himself. When he looked up, he saw her through the mist, leaning in the doorway, staring at him. She had changed and was now wearing nothing but a silk kimono. He had to admit she didn't look that bad. How are you feeling, Santa? Good. I feel... He paused, unsure what to say, how he actually felt. Good. She knelt down beside the tub, ran her finger over the surface of the water. Thirsty, she asked, holding up a tumbler of scotch and water. As a matter of fact, I am. Taking the glass into his hands, he took a sip. Handing it back to her, she gave him a penetrating stare that he found hard to decipher, and then leaned in to kiss him. She tasted of whiskey cigarettes and peppermint. 
but it was good, the way she gently ran her tongue over his upper lip before she pulled away, and Caleb felt himself growing aroused. Now that you're all cleaned up, why don't we get you to bed? Sounds good, baby. Dry yourself off. I'll be waiting. With that, she disappeared out the door. He got up from the tub and dried himself the best he could with the cheap, tiny towels the motel provided. When he entered the room, she was already on the bed, prone on her back and naked. She may have had a butterface, but her body was to die for, and she knew how to flaunt it. He started towards her, but she held up her hand, palm out toward him, and exclaimed, Stop right there, mister. The Santa suit. Put it on. He gave her a questioning half-grimace and then smiled. You serious? I told you, I got a thing for Santa. Smirking, he pulled on the dirty jacket and set the conical hat atop his head. Better? Oh yeah, baby. I've been so naughty. I need to be punished. With that, she burst out in playful laughter, turned over onto all fours, and stuck her ass into the air, whispering over her shoulder, Come and get it, Santa. He approached the bed and, still standing, he pulled himself into her. She let out a deep moan, and he began to move, slowly. He was still drunk as hell, and the room was spinning slightly, but he could feel that primal urge within to rock and rotate. He began to lunge faster and faster, and then, suddenly, it was happening again. Fuck. No, no, no. It was happening again. He could feel himself beginning to change as he thrust against her. A part of him wanted to run away, to bolt through the door and into the night so that he wouldn't hurt her. But another part of him wanted this. It felt good. It felt so fucking good to let go and let the animal inside him take over. Still pounding, Sandra moaning beneath him, he watched in wonder as his fingers, tightly gripping her bony hips, became claws and a thick mat of fur began to weave itself up his arms. Thrusting against her with all his might, he lifted his face and began to howl as his mouth filled with sharp, gleaming fangs. Here comes Santa Claus! Here comes Santa Claus! Right down Santa Claus Lane! Margaret Ashton was the manager of the Lone Pine Motel, She'd been across the street visiting with her daughter and grandson in their two-story cookie-cutter house, and she was just walking back to the motel office when she heard the screaming in room 308. It was that cheap tramp Sandy's room. Margaret had been waiting for an excuse to evict her and marched up to the door, ready to throw her out, Christmas Eve or not. But as she grew closer and heard the urgency to the screams, the gut-wrenching terror of the squeals, she grew hesitant and stopped. Suddenly, without warning, the window shattered, showering her with glass and splintered wood. She fell back and slipped to the ground, watching in utter disbelief as the craziest thing she had ever seen in her life of 56 years came tumbling down atop her. It was a wolf, a huge monster of a wolf, with a snarling mouth of fangs dripping blood and drool and it was wearing a red coat lined in white fur with a Santa cap perched atop its head. From his bedroom window, her grandson Tommy watched the entire thing. Later that night, homicide detectives would interview the little boy. Tearfully, he would relate how he had seen his grandmother ripped to shreds by some kind of beast in a Santa suit. 
One of the uniformed officers standing idly in the background would then turn to his partner and whisper under his breath, Looks like Grandma got run over by a werewolf, walking home from his house Christmas Eve. God, the Easter Bunny, and the ghost of Christmas present watched as two-year-old Annabelle toddled out the door of her street-level apartment and onto the sidewalk, a thumb stuck in her mouth and dragging a Barbie doll along by the hair. God looked like the guy from the Dos Equis commercials, an incredibly good-looking older gentleman with white hair, perfectly coiffed, and a nicely trimmed beard in a tuxedo. The ghost of Christmas present looked extremely bored and kept yawning. The Easter Bunny was an out-of-work writer who needed a shave, dressed in a pink bunny outfit. Cute kid, the Easter Bunny commented. I wouldn't get too attached, the ghost of Christmas present replied, disinterestedly stifling a yawn. Annabelle's parents were fighting again, and they could all hear their voices echoing out from the apartment. Just how many quaaludes did you take? You can't even look at me. Jesus, wake up, bitch, I'm talking to you. Fuck off, Henry. You always were a bore. You dumb cunt. I ought to slap the stupid right off of your face. When the wolf came galloping down the middle of the street in its blood-soaked Santa suit, the Easter Bunny turned to God and said, You gotta be putting me on, man. God rolled his eyes. The wolf grabbed the baby in its mouth and threw the child upward into the night sky, where she hung suspended in the moonlight for a moment, tiny arms and legs kicking, and then tumbled down, landing on the street with a thud. The beast leapt at her, sinking its fangs into her neck and thrashing its head side to side until the tiny figure ceased to struggle and lay limp in its mouth. It's probably for the best, the ghost of Christmas past said. What? Why? the Easter Bunny asked, scratching at the stubble on his face. You want to tell him, God? Or should I? God gestured with his hands as if to say, Go ahead. It's all you. If Annabelle had lived through this night, after being molested by her stepfather and stepbrother, she would have become a heroin addict by 14 and a prostitute by 15. She then would have gotten picked up by a notorious serial killer, who after raping her for days would finally kill her by trying to give her a lobotomy with a cordless drill. Her life taken like this, quickly and mercifully, is a blessing, a thing of joy, a Christmas miracle. Is this true? The Easter Bunny asked God. God grinned and nodded. You don't say much, do you? The Easter Bunny asked God. God just shrugged. Father Mulligan was cleaning up after midnight mass when he heard the click-clack of claws on the wooden floor. He paused, chalice in one hand, ciborium in the other, and listened. Hello, he called out, his voice echoing throughout the empty chapel. Who's there? Beneath the pounding of blood in his ears, he distinctly heard panting, like that of a large animal. Hello? Deep in the dark recess of the hall, Something stirred, moved, and then came slinking out of the shadows, a large creature walking on all fours, its eyes alight and flickering like yellow flames. The beast came forward slowly down the aisle, Santa hat drooping down one side of its head, a dead baby hung limply in its mouth. The wolf approached the altar and came so close that the priest could smell it, a feral odor of blood and musk. 
It spit the baby to the floor where it landed with a horrible smack. But the priest didn't run. He stood his ground, murmuring prayers beneath his breath. He knew why the beast was there, why this spawn of evil had come. It was here to punish him. Punish him for the things he had done to all those little boys. So many. First in Ireland when he had just been doing what had been done to him when he was an altar boy. Then, after coming to America in Philadelphia, where for years the urban darkness of poverty and city life had led him run rampant. Not yet here in California, where he had been sent quickly by the diocese so as not to cause a scandal. But he had his eyes on a few of the boys in his congregation, some of the poorer ones who he thought wouldn't tell. Seeing the monster here was a blessing, and death would be a mercy. He fell to his knees, kissed his stole, and lifted his neck to the beast. But instead of taking him by the throat, the beast spun him around by the shoulders so that the priest fell face first to the floor. With one quick jerking motion, the monster shredded the priest's pants and mounted him. The priest cried out in pain and surprise as the wolf forcibly entered him and warm blood began to trickle down his leg. God, the Easter Bunny and the Ghost of Christmas Present stood at the back of the chapel watching. The Easter Bunny had taken off his hood of rabbit ears and was puffing on an e-cigarette and furiously tapping away on an iPad mini. Been blogging about this whole thing, and yeah, a lot of people see that as offensive. I mean, what the fuck? You got a werewolf dressed like Santa Claus raping a child molesting priest on Christmas Eve? The ghost of Christmas present laughed heartily. Well, I hate to say I told you so, but... You got nothing to say about this, God? The Easter Bunny asked, momentarily looking away from his iPad. God tilted his head to the left, his thin lips bending into a sad frown, and raising his eyebrows in an... Oh, well... Manner shrugged again. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let Earth receive her king. Gravy Brain Jane was out of her mind on LSD and had nowhere to go. She had a thousand tabs of purple sunshine on her, but the connect had never shown and wasn't answering the phone. Exasperated and befuddled, her vision a swirling cyclone of light and darkness, she stumbled from the Greyhound station to a small clearing in a copse of woods. She sat leaning against a tree, the branches dripping and melting around her, the sky a miasma of spiraling stars and galaxies. She giggled and mumbled, no sense makes sense, to herself. Charlie had sent a message from prison that she should deliver the acid here. If Charlie said it would work out, it would work out. She was sure of that. She had thought the other passengers on the bus would have been startled and scared by the X that Sandy and Squeaky had helped her burn into her forehead with hot bobby pins. But no one had noticed at all. The Easter Bunny, who wasn't even wearing his rabbit outfit anymore, and was now just dressed in his usual black jeans and t-shirt, was pacing back and forth irritably. He turned to the ghost of Christmas present and asked, slightly argumentatively, Well, where's God? Oh, he couldn't make it. Had a concert to catch. A concert? What are you talking about? Well, it was Skynard, and you know how he loves Freebird. Typical. Gravy brain, Jane giggled when she saw the beast slowly creeping towards her. 
She had been taught to love coyotes when the family was in the desert of Death Valley. Back on the ranch, Charlie had taught them to break down the final wall society imposed on them by having them fell at the stray dogs. Hey there, beautiful, she said. The wolf just stared at her with its unblinking yellow eyes. From their glimmer and spark, she knew just what the creature wanted. It wanted what all men want, and she had been taught the ways of a free love society. Giggling, she squirmed from her panties and lifted her skirt with a vacant grin. She knew that in love, there is no wrong, that submission is a gift, and that you should never learn not to love. Charlie had taught her well. She spread her legs, exposing herself, and the beast crept up to her and lowered its snout to her and began to lap at her in quick, greedy licks. She gripped his ears tight, her head thrown back, and thought about how groovy and sexy it was to be pleasured by the beast, to have death and life so close, to lay your hands upon the monster and be free in love. As she bucked and lurched and felt herself climax, she thought about how the Son of Man had taught her that death is only another orgasm, that everything in the universe is in and out and in and out in a cosmic orgy, babies coming out, galaxies sinking into black holes, knives plunging in, blood pouring out. Wow, talk about the Big Bang. The beast crawled atop her and slipped itself into her. When it shuddered and released itself inside her, she knew within her heart that she would be with child. This was a happy moment, a glorious moment in time, another Christmas miracle, oh, joyous night. She would name this child Stuart, Stuart Kirby, after her grandfather. Afterwards, the beast lay against her, spent. She stroked its fur with her nails and gently kissed its blood-drenched snout. In this way, the beast kept the girl warm through the coldest hours of the night. Silent night, holy night. All is calm, all is bright. Free in the moonlight as snow began to fall, bathed in the stink of congealing human blood, the taste of flesh and woman fresh on its lips and tongue. The lycanthrope ran, the stars above him a smear of spilled milk, the moon a cataract eye aglow in malignancy. On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me. Caleb awoke in the morning naked and freezing, enveloped in the scent of the Douglas fir and redwood. He shivered and looked about. Snow was falling heavily, blanketing the earth in white. Beside him lay his tattered Santa costume. By some miracle, the hat still clung to his head. He glanced above the towering treetops to the shelter of the sky and saw there a light both majestic and bizarre, seemingly fake like a bad special effect from a cheap television show. And in that glaring gleam of white, he saw a black figure descend, the ghost of Christmas future, who spoke in a deep and sultry voice while extending out a hand. Do you wish to come with me? In his mind, all he could hear was Bing Crosby crooning, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, and a million worlds passed before his eyes. Birthday cakes with only a few candles to blow out, his mother's smile as she tugged on thread, sewing patches on a Cub Scout sash. Playing catch with his dad who bought him that special glove for Little League and would oil it with him in the falling sun of the suburban evening. 
Watching Kennedy's skull explode on television, Jackie screeching and trying desperately to crawl away. The Howdy Doody Show. Lee Harvey Oswald grimacing in pain and turning as Ruby put a bullet in his side. That gnarled old apple tree in the backyard. How that ancient tree would fill with tiny white blossoms in the spring so that you could not tell how old and bent it really was, its age hidden in its blooming. How those tiny petals fell in early summer, glistening in the amber light, a shimmering rain of flowers cascading down and lying white as snow on the ground. Sweat streaming down his brow as he pushed a lawnmower, that smell of fresh-cut grass, such a vibrant green it made his head hurt. Behind the baseball dugout with Betty Connors on a warm summer night, his first kiss. How she had moved away soon after, and he had never seen her again. His draft card, that plain and innocuous envelope of a pale yellow color that they'd all dreaded and all expected. Telling his father, guess I'm going to war, pops. And his father just nodding back stoically. His gal Sally, with her beehive hairdo, who wouldn't let him fuck her no matter how hard he begged and pleaded, telling her he didn't want to go to war a virgin. The ancient apple tree in autumn, loaded with ripe fruit. The bumpy ride over the Pacific in a military transport plane. The Vietnamese whore who spread her legs for a single American dollar. Paddy fields burned and incinerated so that no water stood within them and the rice stalks withered. January 1968. Tet. The new year, a time to worship ancestors. An intricate barrage of hellfire. Medevac choppers stuffed with bloody men and boys. Firefights, flares illuminating the night. The thunder of mortars and sparks of muzzle flash. A landscape of smoke and exploding ordinances. Those mornings when the bombers flew in and the ground shook like jelly. Seeing men he knew dancing and screaming in flames. Splintered, broken trees, smoke billowing in the distance. The pickle switch and canisters of napalm. VC bodies dressed in black lying in horrible piles. A rifle on the ground with a stream of ammunition dripping out of it. I dare you to pick up that dead man's gun. Yeah, right. The tunnels. And the idea of winter. Just the concept of it in that hot, hot land where all is hidden from you, taken and there is nothing to believe in or hope for. But you imagine that tree back home nonetheless, barren and without leaves and fruit, draped in snow and frozen. The way the men whispered when they found a dead body, till all you hear is whispers of body, body, body. Then the beast appears, who is really only a little girl. How could you have thought that a little girl was a monster? There was no monster, just a little girl. You made everything else up. But now there is a monster, just as sure as there are ghosts, an Easter bunny, and a god. It's you. You're the monster. You're the beast. And you think to yourself, what have I done? What did I do? Then, as you face this ultimate truth, the cold takes you. And when would spring come again? Certainly not in this lifetime and not on this earth. So, yes, you say to the cold in the winter, to the ghost of Christmas future who holds nothing forth but death. Yes, take me. Just take me away and let me be free. An affirmation to end the rest of your negations. And you let go of that aching, awful, agonizing pain of being a man of flesh, 
and blood, the cold slowing down your heart and give in to death. And as you slip away into the embrace of the ghost of Christmas future, you wonder, was it real? Was any of it real at all? And in the heavens, a laughing god finally breaks his silence and answers, there is no such thing as real. It's all just a dream within a dream. That wraps up our special Christmas episode, Dear Disturbed Minds. We hope you survived the chilling tales and found a new appreciation for the darker side of the holiday season. As we bid farewell to this festive nightmare, remember that the haunting doesn't end here. Stay tuned for more spine-tingling stories, mysteries, and nightmares in the upcoming episodes of the Disturbed Mind podcast. Your support and fear keep us going, and we can't wait to share more with you in the new year. Until we meet again, keep your lights on, your doors locked, and your minds disturbed. Wishing you a merry and haunting Christmas, and see you in the darkness of the new year.